G'day mate, 40 here. So I'm back on Manly Beach. I just can't resist the cheap public transportation prices here in Sydney. So I've been all around Sydney and I'm spending on average 67 cents a day, like one Australian dollar. Right, for one Australian dollar, I'm riding light rail to Circular Quay, the Sydney Opera House in the Central Business District of Sydney. Then I'm getting on the ferry to Manly, riding the ferry to Manly, which I used to think was like $8, $10, $12, $15 Australian. Well, somehow I'm only spending $1 Australian, 67 cents American, like all day, <laughs> all day transportation needs. I could just ride on the Sydney ferry through Sydney Harbour, like all day. It's such a joy. So. Uh, very windy day today, so we'll see how the wind affects the sound quality. You can, you can tell me if the sound quality is just too bad. But I've uh, been traveling around Sydney listening to Dr. Mark Shapiro, who's a professor at Point at a Jesuit University, and uh, here he is talking about woke culture. He's not very happy about woke culture. Show you what annoys me very much because I take you when you come on the trips. I take you to great places and I show you great things. In fact, those who will be with me in Italy, we're going to be entering the venue. So tell me about the sound quality because tremendous amount of wind, and I won't persist if the sound quality is too bad. But let's get some uh, Uncle Mark Shapiro here. So anyway, the point about Mark Shapiro is his father is Edward Shapiro, an historian of uh, Jews in America. And Edward Shapiro went to school in Washington, D.C. with Werner Wolf. Remember Werner Wolf, the sportscaster? He used to do the morning show on CBS back in the 1980s with, with Diane Sawyer. And his catchphrase was, let's go to the videotape. So, okay, so far the sound is fine. So Werner Wolf went to school with Mark Shapiro's dad, Edward Shapiro. The famous ghetto with two weeks, and right as you enter the ghetto, right on the side, you have the actual declaration from the day the ghetto was established, uh... So almost, five, almost 500 years ago, in which it states that the Jews, no one's allowed in here, and the Jews are not allowed to leave, and they, they appear at night, and non-Jews are not allowed to enter, whatever. I forget the exact question. Um, when you come. So the whole idea of a ghetto for Jews, right, sounds absolutely horrible from a 21st century perspective, but, I mean, is not Orthodox Judaism a form of a, a Torah ghetto? I mean, I'm sure there are traditional Jews who believe that Hashem gave the Jews the Torah written and oral so that they may be fenced in and uh, protect the, the gentle goyim of creation because the, the Jews would be fenced in by all the restrictions of the, the Torah written and, and oral. Also, better to live in a ghetto than to get slaughtered outside the ghetto or to have a dramatic increase in social tension, resentment, you know, hatred, fear. Of Jews, so if living in a ghetto made it easier for non-Jews to accept the presence of Jews in their midst, then you know at that time and place, uh, I, I can think of a, a lot worse options. You come with me to Vienna, smack in the middle of the main square, right at the top there. You have a terrible anti-Semitic thing, and all throughout Europe you see these things, and um, these are important, I think, to see to show uh, people today don't read them, they don't pay attention to them. Who can read the Latin going into the Venice ghetto? What it says about the Jews. Uh, but when you lead a tour, this is what you want to see, and this is important stuff. And you have in Germany, on a number of churches, you have, uh, many of the churches have, uh, not many, a few of the churches have this, you know, almost, the, uh, 
find you something and show you something here um, because uh, the, uh, you might have heard of the so anyway how are you feeling about the magnificent Dallas Cowboys victory today 40 to 3 of the Minnesota Vikings this is the biggest road victory in Dallas Cowboys history and so I'm feeling good the Cowboys are now 7 and 3 looking strong to make the playoffs and it helps me to get over the pain of yesterday's 48-45 USC victory over UCLA. I'm a Bruin, went to UCLA back in the 1980s to study economics. And I'm walking around Manly, right, on Sydney's North Shore, like checking in with my phone on every play. What a heartbreaking loss. DTR, Dorian Thompson-Robinson, the UCLA quarterback, threw three interceptions and lost a fumble. So four turnovers thanks to DTR. Right, he was driving for what would have been the winning touchdown against USC and in the last minute throws an interception. And I was just thinking about that. Like, I was very intensely into the game. But I get no social reinforcement right, in Sydney for my, my sporting allegiances. So without social reinforcement, your allegiances tend to wane whether it's to, to Judaism, to sports, to your culture, whatever it is that's important to you, if you're not getting social reinforcement from other people, right, your passions and commitments are going to attenuate. Right? They're going to get weaker. Right? We need other people. We need community to build up a feeling of connection. So one of the great things about sports is a connection with other people. Win. But without people to bond with, all right, there's no shared sense of creating a common reality and no shared you know, unity and uh, synchronicity with other people and no bond. Does your passion for sports ball impede your spiritual progress? Well, it can. I'll have to leave it to you to judge whether or not it's uh, impeding my, my <laughs> spiritual progress. Like I like to start the day out with about an hour of... Uh, 12-step work, you know, on the phone with sponsees on a meeting, listening to a talk. But uh, after that, you know, I feel free to explore my sports ball interests. So the World Cup has already started. So 6 a.m. tomorrow, America plays. It's first game in the World Cup of soccer. And then Wednesday morning at 6 a.m., Australia plays France in its first game. So part of me wants to go to a sports bar. So I was asking about, you know, what are the, what are the best sports bars around here so I can have that shared communal experience, that, that, that shared sense of excitement and emotional energy that comes from, you know, participating in an event together. But uh, I found out at the sports bars, like a, a glass of seltzer costs $12, right? Whether it's a glass of beer, a glass of seltzer, a glass of Coke, it's uh, $12. So maybe I'll just stay home and I'll watch the sports bar but I watch it with the sound off so I can listen to a 12-step lecture so I can be spiritually edified on the one hand while indulging my base physical, you know, base physical inclinations, you know, simultaneously. I mean, I think this is, this is the best solution. Like, sports ball for the eyes, you know, 12-step talk for the soul. Right. I mean, you're hitting on all cylinders. And yeah, why do guys love sports? And I think the reason why guys love sports is it's a simulation of war. And guys are just naturally built to be prepared to go into war. Like, you feel the need to build up 
I'm betting on all European teams because of their superior endurance. You've been reading a lot of Steve Saylor. So I think it's natural for men to you know, want to band together and to defend your in-group or to make war on an out-group. And so banding together for war, preparing for war, or having substitution rituals for war, I think is the most natural, normal male thing. And so the excitement and thrill of sports is that it is a vicarious way of waging war, which is just totally you know, part of uh, male nature. And I think every man that knows you have to be prepared to either take a life or to sacrifice your life. I mean, that, that's what it means to, to be a man. You have to be prepared to stand up for some things. You have to be prepared to fight and defend people. You have to be prepared to you know, make the ultimate sacrifice of your life for, for the people, community, things that you believe in. And so by watching some sports ball, we get to reenact those rituals, you know, prepare for a sports ball turning into the real war. HBD for fun and profit. So Elliot Blatt, have you, you wagered some money? So so what, what team are you wagering on to win, win the World Cup? I think maybe this year Australia will do it. Is this the year that uh, the Aussies fair dinkum take the World Cup? and synagogue. So uh, this is the big one in Strasbourg, the famous one, uh, although now it's in a museum and it's replaced by replicas, but you have at various churches. So I can't, I definitely can't bet on sports ball. Like that's a form of excitement, it's just too potent for me. I went crazy betting on sports ball and one guy took me to the cleaners, somehow he knew about horse racing and I ended up owing him thousands of dollars in high school and just settled with him for like 200 because there was one point where he owed me over a thousand. You know, allowed him to settle for pennies on the dollar. Germany, hello people. Okay. All right, this is uh, Dr. Mark Shapiro, scholar of modern Jewish thought. Churches, you have examples of this. Uh, uh, so you have on the left uh, the church standing triumphant, on the right uh, the synagogue, you know, blindfolded because the Jews are blinded to the truth, and uh, she's, I guess, looks a little wanton, <laughs> usually it's described. And this is important, and I don't think anyone today going into a church uh, looks at that and is influenced uh, by this, but it's important. Now you have the Jew sow. This is another common image of uh, the Jews suckling on a, a pig, because of course we don't eat pig. Um, and you have this in woodcuts, and here you have it in Wittenberg, which is Martin Luther's church. Uh, so uh, as a historian, this is the sort of thing which really brings to light what, you know, for hundreds of years, people walking into a church saw and how it turned them against the Jews. Now, of course, today in a place in Germany, no one's going to church uh, in all of Europe. Uh, they don't go to church anymore. But, um, and, and no one who's anti-Semitic is being anti-Semitic because of an image of, uh, which I don't even know what it means anymore, uh, and it's at the top, shame on the phone rush. I mean, but this is important historically. So then you have, I think call a couple, in my opinion, to the top German court, because you have, a, in the era of cancel culture, you have a, um, uh, where is it, the description of, uh, you have this uh, Jewish individual who's been suing for years, I think it's described here, the plaintiff, since 2018, to have the sculpture removed, just like they removed Confederate statues, to remove this sculpture. Yeah, so I blame that, I blame that schmendrick, you know, that schmuck, who's going around suing churches and uh, public institutions for you know, maintaining this artwork. But uh, I also blame the legal system for allowing it. Like, how did we end the culture for 
they're encouraging this kind of sense of victimization and outrage and wanting to activate cancel culture. So individuals don't act in a vacuum, right? I'm a UCLA Bruins fan, but the longer I spend in Australia, the weaker my attachment to UCLA Bruins because I'm getting no social reinforcement. How much cottaging is going on in Manly? This is a wholesome, manly place. All right, there's no cottaging going on in Manly. Right, this is not Beverly Hills, man. This is not San Francisco. This is not New York City. There's no cottaging going on here. Right, I'm panning around. Do you see any cottaging going on? No. No cottaging. This is a cottaging free zone. Because it's anti-Semitic. It should be on now. Now, despite the fact that the Jewish community, as it says here, um, um, created a site of remembrance, incorporating the sculpture. I don't know what to say. What can I say? Uh, it annoys me to no end that some Jewish person wants to remove the historical evidence of the anti-Semitism of Martin Luther in his own church. Uh, and it's not only a violation against history, it's a violation against, uh, we should know the history of anti-Semitism, and it hurts my tours, because when I go to these places, I want to be able to point to it, and uh, I don't want to, otherwise, who knows, they'll destroy it, they'll send it to a museum, it's like what they did with all the statues in America, no one knows where they are, they put them away somewhere, and I don't like it, and it annoys me, it's a do-gooder, and I don't like these do-gooders, because, uh, and no one's going to the church anyway, believe me, <laughs> they don't go to churches anymore, so what can I say, if, if, if they ever took them down, I'd be very, very annoyed, uh, but in terms of tours, since a number of you uh, asked, uh, I would just briefly uh, share something with you, uh, and I do want to make a correction. Uh, you know, I spoke a lot about Europe. I took my son. It was a nice trip. Uh, and I'm just going to show you a couple pictures here. Uh, you might recall when um, I told you a number of times how the women don't go. I spent Shabbos again there. The women don't go to shul, and that's true. I did not. Yeah, so all this tearing down of statues is just crazy. Like, destroying remembrances of our history is insane. Someone should, like, mount a march in Virginia or Charlottesville to, you know, protest the tearing down of these Civil War statues. It's a, it's a shonda. Right? And here you can find you know, strong support from, from the Torah for you know, the preservation of history. We shouldn't treat history so, so casually. So traditionally, Orthodox women didn't go to synagogue, but uh, in Anglo countries, it's more common that, that women go to synagogue. But uh, if you're single, or you're looking to mingle, uh, meet meet an Orthodox Jewish woman. Uh, you're not so likely to meet one at, at synagogue, right? So going to synagogue is more of an obligation on the men than on the women. Oops. Trying to get everything queued up here. And uh, a number of them voted here so far. And uh, But that's the only time, also that important. Um, in fact, I... Um, let me show you something. I even was in one of the new shows. Well, not new show, a newer show, but they even built an Ezra Snushi. Here it is, about 15 years ago, he showed me. So uh, you see that uh, even in Jerba, there's uh, been some uh, changes going on. Uh, but just briefly, here's some, some of the pictures I showed, and I think you might find interesting. Uh, the children, you got to be there on Shabbos to see uh, hundreds of children. Uh, but I wasn't just also in the yeshivas. There's a couple of yeshivas. So uh, here's a picture in one of the yeshivas. Um, all these young kids. Uh, by the way, they don't wear tzitzis, most of them. As I told you, they don't, and I asked them what they were paying when I was there. He said it's very hot. <laughs> There's no expectation that, uh, to wear a But Here's other pictures I took. Uh, here, you see a little kid, he does a tzitzis there. Uh, 
in the yeshiva here, uh, it's only Kodesh, and only Mudechol. There is another school where they can go, and they can get some, uh, they learn math and some science uh, for like an hour a day, but some kids don't go, they just learn all Torah every day. Except for, I think, Yom Kippur and I guess but they're there on Shabbos. I went on Shabbos, they go to, after Shul, they go back to yeshiva every single day, 12 months a year. No, uh, no Chofesh, like we're used to. Uh, um, I'll show you some other things that I took. Uh, here's another picture. Come on. That gown is because the guy's wearing uh, shorts. Shorts. They, you can't oh, wear shorts is, in your sheets. This is the June 20th, day, um, 2022. Not to say a lecture. That's the Rebbe. The rise of reform uh, and the rabbinic uh, response. Come on, get past the pictures. It's, it's harder for me to oh, so, uh, uh, fast forward on my iPhone. Uh, they, they, they don't divide it by grades. They divide it by learning levels of learning. And interestingly enough, they publicize, I don't know if I told you this ever, they publicize uh, once or twice a year all the grades of all the students. I have a pamphlet I have, which has all the grades for each class. Yeah, a lot of Jewish schools do this. They publicize everybody's grades. That will never happen in America because it's a violation of privacy. But there, you know, they feel that if, uh, you know, you, you got a 60 or something in uh, in Gemara or in Halakha, that's going to embarrass you and you'll do better. So I asked, well, how could you do this? And they said, we're all family, so uh, it's okay. Uh, so here's another Rebbe and... Uh, I even have, I think, a video of... Uh, I think this is Spain. They, they review the Parsha, here it is, each week in uh, with the Trump. Yeah, I took a picture of that uh, video. Let's see. So by the time uh, they're older, uh, they, uh, they, they know the whole Torah by heart with the Trump. When you go into the shul, you have to wear a gown if you don't have... Um, uh, uh, if you have shorts. So, for example, this is my son uh, putting on his tefillin in one of the shorts. You have to wear this gown, which is strange. And um, there's 14 shorts in Germany, including one in the shop. Ah, so, everyone's so Germany, me. not, not and, Spain. Uh, all, the work, all the people who have their shops there. And uh, the final thing I want to show you is 14 shorts uh, in Germany, total? This is in a place called Sarsis. I also had shorts on, which is near Libya. So much so that my phone was being charged a lot of money. It wasn't on the Verizon plan because it was going through Libya. And, uh, but they have a whole community they're all Arabic speaking the only place in the world where you get Arabic speaking children uh, were Jewish and, uh, and so you don't think it was all uh, all research and uh, uh, going out there uh, there's still there's uh, lots of fun if we ever have a trip there uh, here I am in the Sahara uh, that was a lot of fun so that's uh, our brethren in uh, Tunisia in Jerusalem oh it's very challenging by the way for Zionists for, because uh, they don't they, they, although they're big Zionists they, uh, they don't do Tafnun they do Halal without a Rafa they don't do Tafnun in the only place in the world the day before and the day after Yomasmut, three days, yet they do not want any of their children going to Israel. Because when after the state was declared and many of them went, uh, they became uh, a Sorati or irreligious. And everyone in Jerusalem, all 1200, all Shomer Shabbos, all the children, because the only culture is the Jewish culture and the Arab culture. And they know to be Arab. But if you go to Israel, half these people, you see that they Elliot Blatt says I've been spending a lot of time listening to interviews with scammers, right? Who've gone to prison. So why are you doing that? Bro, you should stream at noon Sydney time, which is, oh yeah, 5%, uh, yeah, 5 p.m. Pacific. Well, isn't, isn't that basically what I'm doing? It's just uh, 1.52 p.m. here in, in Sydney right now well, sorry, uh, on a Monday. Groups, they would just merge in with, uh, you know, a sorority sorority, but not uh, really halafic. So, uh, and I can argue with them, it's, uh, it would happen. So they want all their kids to remain there and the community's growing. It's the only Jewish community in our world that's growing. And uh, it's, like I said, it's something to behold. Yeah, Elliot Black, why are you listening to all these interviews with wicked people? Shouldn't you be listening to interviews with, you know, holy, righteous, you know, Gedolim, you know, the great rabbis? The end of uh, that, uh, let me go five more minutes. I have other things I want to get to, but I'll get to next week. Uh, I, uh, 
I gotta show you another thing. This is unbelievable. Uh, because what I'm gonna show you, I, I remembered it after the class. And I remember it was a big news because the, the professor who we concerned it was a well-known uh, Christian Bible professor. Do you remember we spoke about Rabbi Dunham of Amsterdam? He had his commentary on the Talmud where he has this uh, unusual idea that certain passages of the Talmud were really uh, meant to mock the rabbis and they got incorporated. And one of the ones he gave the example was is a case where a guy falls off the roof and it's a woman on the way down, they have sex, whatever. Now, uh, I, I think this is, I, 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 I don't have anything. The actual standard view, and this, of course, the correct view, is that the Talmud was sometimes in crazy cases. Yeah, Ellie Blatt says feelings of emptiness leads to drug use, out of control drug use leads to crime. Okay, so plug this show into your emptiness and, and we'll, we'll forestall the descent into drug use and crime. Not that it ever could happen, but that they want to get the most extreme case. Uh, uh, when, when we were in Gemara when I was young, we'd ask questions about cases and the Rebbe would say, you know, cash for myself, no, it's cash for myself. And uh, the Gemara sometimes would be these extreme cases, sometimes they extreme cases that it covers anything, anything imaginable. But there was this uh, professor. You know, and who, like, uh, maybe the way to approach it he, uh, is like... And uh, for years, yeah, he would... Uh, he would give this uh, case, this story, and he would use it to contrast, at least he claims, to contrast with Christianity, that in Christianity, if you have the intention, but you don't do it, you still get credit in Judaism. If you don't have the intention, it can still have significance. I've got these exact details. I actually think he probably was using it as an example to show the foolishness of Jewish law that it goes with all these extreme cases. But if you can believe it, uh, this is going back already to the 90s. It's not just something happening today. I think we only have snowflakes today. And Elliot Blatt says, I try to understand things that seem irrational on the surface. Yeah, so do I. I think that's... It's one of the many things that bonds us, because I just don't like that explanation, oh, people are just stupid or people are irrational. I think if you put a little effort in, you can understand why people do what they do. We're on the surface. It seems absolutely inexplicable. Uh, you know, I'll listen to this story. very progressive, which they call woke uh, Christian seminary, protested that telling the story of the Talmud made her feel safe or uh, used or whatever. It was some nonsensical thing, and the professor was, uh, he was uh, disciplined. And he was, uh, she charged that, that by using the story, the lecture unreasonably interviewed with academic performance, he was put on probation, he had to apologize, he was told to get therapy, and never to be your own female student, even though he had taught this passage for many years. Now what's interesting is, in all the articles about this, in one of the articles, they, they, they got to Ravaro's salvation. Uh, uh, he says, uh, Ravaro says, the professor made an innocent statement, and he quoted Talmud correctly, he says, Ravaro's salvation, he noted Talmud is, and Dean of Bristol, Medical College of Chicago, people should stop reading their own prejudicial ideas into the Talmud, it's like what's going to but uh, I mean, this is interesting, sexual or textual harassment. And then you have another one, unintended sex leads to unintended fall. Uh, textual harassment. Have you ever suffered from textual harassment? Professor Files, stupid over charge of harassment. I just, I just Googled it, and these were the three that came up, because I remember it was a big case, but there's many, many others. Uh, really, really crazy. Okay, we go two more minutes. Uh, in terms of Rich Chimay, I thank the person who commented on the video on YouTube, and also Hobby uh, Katz for reaching out to Rabbi Jaffe, the uh, head of Maimonides now. So this is a June 20th, 2022 Mark Shapiro lecture, The Rise of Reform Judaism, The Rabbinic Response. And this is just a day before the Roe v. Wade decision is handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court. That uh, they do not, in the, from already in days of the world, they do not say rich faith. And anyone who wants more details on it, uh, you can find it in, uh, in this book by Rabbi uh, Benjamin Hamburger, uh, Minhaj Ashkenaz, first volume. He has a whole discussion of Rich Shemay, how Rich Shemay, this was not Ashkenazi Minhaj. And uh, you can read all about it. I have other things that are... Yeah, Elliot Blatt says, modern life is low effort, no, low enchantment. So, Elliot, what do you think about uh, what I was listening to yesterday? It says that uh, psychedelics can have an integrating effect, right? So it helps to give you distance, helps you to see connections between things, 
that you would not otherwise see. Ah, uh, yeah, I, I heard this on the, the Parrot Room on on Mickey Kaus's annual weekly talk with, with Robert Wright. So have you experienced the integrative power of uh, psychedelics helping you to see connections between things that you previously didn't see, helping you to get needed distance from your life and a sense of uh, peace with your decisions? Do I want to get to I'll do this next class, including the rum bomb, and I, I was right in my memory and not teaching a child on this profession, why he doesn't record it. I was also in Paris on the way back. I'll share some of the interesting things that uh, I saw in Paris that I think you'll find interesting because we take for granted just the opposite. Because we don't live in a place where it doesn't get the sun, the sun doesn't set until almost 10 o'clock at night. Uh, many people, because we live in many different places, I get to it. They assume certain things. Okay, the chat says psychedelics are overrated. You've done them dozens of times and you are unchanged. Things about Jewish life because they live in time, in time zone where. I know people have taken ketamine as part of an overall therapeutic regimen. So it's not just ketamine on its own. It's ketamine plus psychotherapy. So it's like liberalism. Liberalism can never survive on its own. Yeah, you get a distance from your own personal story. Yeah, often we need distance from our own stories. But uh, I know people who have gotten benefit from a ketamine regimen. You need ketamine plus therapy. Just like with liberalism, you need liberalism plus nationalism or liberalism plus socialism. Like liberalism always demands, you know, a plus element for it to work. So liberalism is just a set of principles. It's not really a system of governance. Where things are uh, relatively easy, and uh, I also want to get to. Uh, oh, I want to refer Breuer and his commentary on Shira Shiri. We'll get to that as well. But it's already time, so I want to pick up you now uh, uh, where we left off. Especially since I do want to wrap up to a certain extent, uh, if I can, by next class, because then I'm going to be off uh, uh, for a while, for a couple months. Uh, but, uh, let us begin. Um, if you recall, and if not, uh, I encourage you to go to the, go to the videotape, and, uh, as uh, Werner Wolf used to say. Uh, Werner Wolf was uh, uh, together with my father in uh, school in Washington, D.C., but uh, if you remember him from the news, you can go to the YouTube or the uh, Torah Motion and you can listen to it. We were, we had, we're in the middle of dealing with Abraham Guy. Ellie, you don't believe in chemical shortcuts, but bro, you haven't tried modafinil. I mean, wow, modafinil just makes you happy, fills you with confidence, new sense of energy, intellectual curiosity. I mean, it's one thing to be generally against chemical shortcuts, but modafinil, bro. Wow. I took some this morning, feeling great, full of confidence. Geiger and uh, his approach. So let me pick up just by saying that according to Geiger, uh, and he's clear about this, uh, in the battle between Pharisees and Sadducees. So Abraham Geiger was a little bit like uh, Martin Luther for Christians. So Abraham Geiger was one of the leading founding rabbis of the Reform Judaism movement. If everyone wants to be Pharisee, the Orthodox, that's what called. Now, the Orthodox are the modern Sadducees. Just like the Sadducees died out because they couldn't change with the times, and the temple was destroyed, they were so attached to the temple, they couldn't adapt, and therefore they disappeared. Uh, so to the Orthodox, the traditionalists, uh, now that we're into the era of emancipation and to be welcomed uh, into the modern state, uh, uh, the traditionalists live like this. Uh, they can only live in a ghetto when they control people. Uh, to uh, live uh, the way they want to live. And therefore, he had no doubt that the Orthodox would not be Yeah, that's true. Whenever Jews have had a choice, they've generally, the majority of them have chosen not to be Orthodox. Right? Jews given a choice, the majority of them choose not to be Orthodox Jews. Well, you could say that, well, Geiger hasn't proven wrong. Uh, orthodoxy has survived, and I have no doubt that if Geiger was alive today, he'd be quite surprised that uh, there's still a vibrant orthodoxy, orthodox community that doesn't have their children. In a sense, people look at it the other way. Yes, really, uh, as orthodox, 
Do you see yourself as a good representative of the efficacy of modafinil? Yes, I do. But uh, maybe, maybe I suffer from misapprehensions. Maybe I'm out of touch with reality. Like maybe I'm missing part of the story here. 10 miles a day, meaning most days I'm doing between 12 and 15 miles, but I'm also, I've taken three days off since I've been here, three days off with, with no exercise on those days, and I'm feeling much stronger, much better than I did when I arrived, so initially 10 miles a day absolutely wear me out, but uh, now 10 miles, not such a big deal. I haven't been doing as much swimming as I need to. I notice when I'm out there swimming, just get out of breath. I just can't get enough breath very quickly. So that, that usually takes me a couple of weeks of swimming to get into shape. And the walking doesn't translate into swimming shape. That's going to be Hirsch's major point, Hirsch. And it became clear very quickly from 1800, where in a place like Germany, traditional Jews were the majority, to 1850, where they were a minority in all the big cities, uh, happened within two generations. Uh, that showed, that, uh, according to Hirsch, that the uh, rabbinic leaders were, had missed the boat and were not living in accord with Torah and their adherence, which means that the Torah has to confront and uh, be a controlling factor in every civilization. If you're living in the 19th century Germany, like you're in 18th century Berlin, Warsaw, or Vilna, and there's no way to be able to survive. So we'll see that the figure of Shoshan Rafael Hirsch is going to be the biggest adversary for a Geiger because he shows that contrary to what Geiger says, uh, that traditional Judaism can survive. But both Geiger and Hirsch agree that the old form of traditional Judaism could not survive. Uh, Geiger drew one conclusion from it, that therefore we have to abandon traditionalism and entirety. And Hirsch drew the other conclusion. And once Hirsch's method gets going, there's very little tradition. In fact, Geiger felt so threatened by Hirsch. So you could call Abraham Geiger a founder of Reform Judaism. You could call Samson Raphael Hirsch founder of modern orthodox Judaism, and you can call Zachariah Frankel the founder of conservative Judaism. These are all 19th century German Jewish intellectuals. And uh, everything that's important to Judaism, including Halakha, arose from this creative spirit. The fact that Halakha doesn't speak to us anymore doesn't change the fact that it arose from, arose from the creative spirit. But for Judaism to survive, every generation needs a new creative spirit. So the idea, remember, it's not reformed Judaism. That's like, uh, you know, happening Could I obtain mushrooms in Australia if I were inclined to? Uh, probably could. Like, I haven't heard anyone talk about mushrooms. I haven't smelled marijuana since I've been here. Marijuana is illegal here. So... I haven't seen, you know, seen very few, you know, drug addicts, drunks, homeless, you know, those side cases. Yes, no, it's reform. It continues, uh, it's reform. It continues to change. And uh, although even some like Iger and the early reformers could never imagine what reform is became, they did recognize that moral values change. And uh, therefore, it doesn't make sense, for instance, when uh, years ago, uh, someone wrote an essay uh, against uh, the changing view of reform, like homosexuality, and said, what would uh, Solomon 
Yes, absolutely magnificent Dallas Cowboys victory today. I was watching the, the whole thing live. KO Sports, man. It's a great, great uh, streaming sports subscription here in Australia. Just $28 a month and pretty much all the live streaming sports that you need. Uh, Australia won the first two of its three one-day matches with England and cricket. Uh, Saturday night, the match was going on in the Sydney cricket ground, and when I'd hear screams around me, I'd know that uh, Australia had taken another wicket from England. So the Sydney cricket ground's about uh, four miles from where I'm staying. Now, I don't want to go to the Sydney cricket ground. It costs like $50 for a ticket. It just seems too much money. I'm not spending much money on this trip. Probably spent a total of uh, 200 American dollars since I've been here, maybe 250 American dollars in my 17 days. This is day 17 of my journey down under. So I get to have a lot of spare time, a lot of freedom. In exchange, I need to restrict any needless spending of money. So you found a copy of Matt Forney's Confessions of an Online Hustler, $10 paperback edition on Amazon. I believe that you can get it for free. <laughs> it's going next to my record box. I believe you can get a, a virtual copy of that for free. You just sign up to one of the Matt Forney email lists. So I wonder how much of that book, which I think was published 10 years ago, is still relevant and useful today. So anyway, he gets... Mark Shapiro starts to talk here about the Orthodox Jewish response to Roe v. Wade. Open up the Torah and actually point to this verse or that verse, but it's a dialectic of what we hear. And remember, the Torah comes from the people itself. That's where it comes from, someone like Geiger. Um, but Geiger is not just some preacher, like I said. Geiger is a scholar, a great scholar. And it's going to be his understanding of ancient Jewish history in particular, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, he's going to focus on them, that's going to enable him to legitimize reform from a traditional sense. He's going to show that he's carrying out a tradition. It's not just a break with tradition, something new. He could have said that this is reform, this is the past. Wow, physical copies of Matt Forney's book are normally going for $50 to $100? Wow. I, I don't think that, uh, that my books are selling for that much money. Way to go, Matt. Yeah, we're reformers who said this. This is how we used to live, but now we understand we have to live differently, and therefore uh, it's a break, and now we're going to be in a new type of uh, tradition for other people. No, Tiger sees what's to bring about So the Targumim 
our rabbinic commentaries are about 2,000 years old, and he's also talking about a, a Greek, the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Bible, of the Hebrew Bible. About how Judaism developed based on this. Do I believe the media is trying to protect Caroline Eliasson and Sam Bankman Freed? Certainly think so when you look at that you know, puff piece in the New York Times. But they're also getting a lot of critical scrutiny. But yeah, I think they got so much positive press because they echoed the media's left-wing orientation. So if you echo the values that the media upholds, you're much more likely to get positive press. I mean, if they'd been right-wing and donating to VDARE, they would have gotten destroyed. Yeah, Sam Bankman freed. So, yeah. We, we have a ruling class, and they're, they're predominantly on the left. And so there's simply a way of speaking if you generally want to get along with elites. Elites in the professions, elites in the media, elites in non-governmental organizations. All right, there's a certain you know, left-wing way of speaking, and Sam Bankman-Fried and Caroline Eliasson mastered that. Now, I really think if only Caroline got to know me, I could make a mind. That's that's my brave prediction. Caroline, if you're if you're listening to this, then please reach out. I'm here for you. So these are 2,000 year old rabbinic commentaries on the Bible. So there are two Talmuds, there's the Babylonian Talmud, which was produced in Iraq about 1500 to 2000 years ago, and there's the Jerusalem Talmud, which was uh, produced in Jerusalem. The Babylonian Talmud is the dominant one in, in Jewish life. It gets 100 times as much attention as the Jerusalem Talmud. Uh, left us aware that their hysterical reactions to benign events such as Trump on Twitter only serve to feed their enemies. Yeah, but it doesn't just serve their enemies. They're also whipping up enthusiasm and fundraising and emotional fervor on their own side. So... When you have one side of the political spectrum getting hysterical, yeah, one question to ask is, what reaction is this creating from their enemies? Another question to ask, what reaction is this creating from people who are in the middle? And then the next question to ask is, what reaction is this creating among members of your own team? So if you can fire up your base, right, and fire up the other party's base, right, then on the face of it, you're dealing with kind of a, an even, you know, even reaction. So the main thing is, do you fire up your base more than you fire up the opposition? And that seems to be the formula for winning. You want to fire up your base more than you fire up the opposition. And you also want to increase the odds of people who are undecided moving into your camp. That's what the name was getting. So we have a number of Targumim. Uh, other than, of course, the others are more extensive. Uh, the Arabic Drashim text, which is a translation of the Torah. We have, uh, okay, obviously, the Arabic translation. We have, in terms of ancient versions, we have
from other sources. So there's a lot to work on in this regard. Uh, what Geiger's going to tell us is that there's a whole history to Judaism that, uh, measure for measure, we can see through these ancient texts. Uh, no one really had argued this uh, before. Uh, to the extent that uh, Geiger technically is speaking in terms of grand theological ideas, it is true. Was... Okay, you say today's leftism and today's leftists seem so lacking in self-awareness, it's unsustainable. Well, they're incredibly successful. So maybe because they control almost all of our major institutions, because they dominate the cultural means of production, maybe that has allowed them to become more slovenly and lazy and self-indulgent. So that's one possible answer. Another is... Maybe they're so dominant in today's America because they are sufficiently self-aware to be effective. I mean, it's hard to say that the center-left and the left have not been effective. Uh, they, they dominate most of our institutions. We'll see, even before Geiger, uh, it had been argued that the scribes, the Sofrim, and even the Masoretes, we'll see that the Masoretes, the ones who punctuated the Torah, had altered the original text. We'll talk about the Sofrim. But Geiger's going to go much further because he's going to offer a complete... Uh, Discussion of this uh, phenomenon. And, uh, Is the Anti Defamation League aware that their actions actually jeopardize the Jews? I don't think they are. I don't think they believe that. But the ADL used to be always on the left, but much less partisan than it's been since Jonathan Greenblatt uh, took over. So now it's just overwhelmingly a leftist institution. And their hysterical responses to people like Kanye West and Kyrie Irving I don't think really are doing Jews or, or non-Jews any favors. So there's going to be a blowback to this ADL overreach. But how severe the blowback? And they're very good at fundraising, right? And uh, money is power. So not clear that they're you know, completely blowing it. I certainly don't like what they're doing, but they keep raising money, they keep getting heard in important places, they seem to have tremendous institutional and, and personal power. They can, you know, they met with Elon Musk, they, they seem to be able to meet with anyone they want. They seem to be able to meet with anyone they want but Donald Trump. But Donald Trump doesn't seem to pay the ADL any mind. Who is writing these checks to the ADL? Some of it's, you know, old Jews who are afraid that the Cossacks are coming. Uh, a lot of it is that secular Jews who don't really practice Judaism but still want some kind of purpose or meaning in their lives. So fighting bigotry and anti-Semitism kind of fills that hole, that, that lack of meaning in their life. So I think that's, that's part of it. And then it's a way to, you know, pay them off, you know, so that you curry favor with the, the right people.
Orthodox uh, Church. Uh, well, the Old Testament of the Septuagint, uh, Geiger says, has a different halacha, which means that it was working with a different text. And Geiger thinks that uh, what we have, our text, what we call the Masoretic text, was actually altered for ideological reasons to reflect the new halacha. Namely, the Pharisees created a new halacha. Of course, Geiger's a new Pharisee, so he can also create a new halacha. That's what. Okay, halacha means the way or the Torah law, Jewish law, is halacha. So halakhic means abiding by Jewish law. That's why this isn't just scholarship, but this is scholarship to make a point, to prove something. If you can show that the Pharisees were engaged in reforms, that is, they didn't like earlier halachot, and therefore they reformed them and came with their own halachot, and then they altered, they changed the text of the Torah to reflect their own halachot, well then Geiger is part of historical continuum, and uh, he can do the same. Uh, in fact, he would say that the situation preserves the ancient and the authentic reading. By the way, since... Uh, I just thought of this as I was preparing today. The Supreme Court is going to uh, come down with its ruling. It'll be released tomorrow or the next day. You sort of know what it's going to say. I shouldn't say that because you never know. It's based on the leak. The Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned, and this is then the last few weeks to break uh, disputes in the Orthodox world. I'm thinking of Torah motions in Canada, so maybe they don't feel the weight of this moment because uh, I think maybe you should have a class or two discussions on it. Because on the one hand, you have people like Rabbi J. David Life coming out uh, like an evangelical preacher saying that the Orthodox Jews should feel a debt of gratitude to the Catholic Church for fighting this battle that we have been on the sidelines on. And on the other hand, you have Rabbi Jeremy Weir, the great other side, uh, gave a very interesting interview on the Christ.com. He was with Rabbi Brandeis with me. His uh, podcast, The Orthodox Conundrum, in which Rabbi Julian Weeder very eloquently explains why it's in Jew, Orthodox Jews' interests to be to support Roe versus Wade and how overturning this would be uh, a terrible thing and uh, I guess to have everyone in the middle. In fact, I was shocked that there was a, an audio from the viewers of a personal chapter. I don't think there's anyone more liberal about abortion or a personal chapter. He's talking about abortions in the ninth month uh, for good reasons. And I don't think that Cecilia says until the seventh month. And Roshakter said he doesn't understand it, so why you can't go to the ninth month if it's an important reason. And uh, he's talking about a case of a Facebook girl from London, she got pregnant, and she's a Facebook girl, and they allowed her to have an abortion, but then he says until the ninth So in traditional Judaism, is the rabbi seen as a scholar or a mystic? Uh, a rabbi just means you've passed a test. So if you're talking about a congregational rabbi, you're talking about someone who kind of you know, ministers to the needs of the congregation, like in large part a social worker. So most Jewish congregations don't look for a rabbi who is a Torah scholar. Right? They look at someone who's going to remember their name, is amiable, friendly, uh, uplifting person to be around, someone who can help you out, provide you know, wisdom and guidance. CNN is calling the location controversial. Wonder why? Does someone involved say something transphobic? What location? What, what, what? Oh, what, what are you talking about there with regard to uh, CNN? So, very few congregants, uh, congregations seek a rabbi who's a mystic. That's more of a a very particular orientation, so there'll probably be 50 times as many congregations that seek a rabbi who's a Torah scholar as opposed to a mystic, then there are probably 10 times as many congregations who seek a rabbi who provides excellent pastoral care. That's even more important than being, than being uh, a Torah scholar. Ah, with regard to the World Cup in Qatar, you're telling me that uh, Qatar is not on board with the trans revolution? It's very sad to hear. I know a lot about the issue. As long as I know there's not never been a post saying unless it's a matter of life and death for the woman, but not for these other concerns. Having abortion in ninth month was in shock here, shall we say it? But uh, so I can tell you that in the Orthodox world, the views go from all the way on the right to all the way on the left, um, and uh, all arguing from Torah sources. And what should be our position? So if I put my two cents in, I think maybe Rabbi Heldman should uh, uh, maybe uh, it's not a traditional candidate, I think, but it's a big issue in America and uh, it's coming down soon. Well uh, if I can, we have one of the most liberal abortion laws in the world. I don't think there are no restrictions on abortions for Debates that Henry Morgenthaler, those who know, was in touch with some white people, and they went to jail a few times because they were taking abortions. You know, when they were illegal, 
it's totally legalized. There's no law restricting it. And uh, I'm with you. I'm uh, I'm very much in favor of Roe versus Wade. I'm a conservative leader. It's good for the Orthodox Republic. Roe versus Wade. But that's Roe versus Wade. I've been in six months. It's not like Canada or the ninth month or something. I don't know that there's any prohibition. It's not. You know, it's the ninth month. You can correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of Canadians are on the tonight. But I I think there's the Supreme Court. There was a lot of Supreme Court threw it out years ago. And Parliament has never passed an abortion law, as far as I know. And it's made a lot of research. Why do I think what do I think of anti-natalism as uh, put forward by David Benatar? I don't know David Benatar. I'm opposed to anti-natalism. I particularly want good, smart, successful people having children. And I want, you know, criminal, criminally inclined types, you know, parasitic types, types that have been on welfare for generations, stupid types, all right, people with massive health problems. I prefer that they don't reproduce. CNN only now learning of Islam's deep abiding commitment to LGBT plus communities. <laughs> you know what they say, when America speaks, we just report on that, so that's the expression. Now listen, when a woman's nine months pregnant, you can get right tomorrow when you permit an abortion. I didn't stick with I'm just saying. Uh, anyway, okay, okay, okay well, so why am I mentioning this? By the way, God bless that was when somebody asked for a medical letter, so that's what I think we're going to discuss next so why uh, why do I mention this? I mention this for one reason because uh, just to show you the sort of thing that Geiger was speaking about. I think I'd give an example. I'll give a few other examples, and then I was preparing the examples. I'm thinking about the questions of what Geiger speaking about in terms of the situation, where it's just an error or a mistake. His point is it's a different halacha, which has then been pushed out. And uh, so, what's the example? Well, here's the example, and it's very uh, ignorant. So, in the book of what do I make of the anti-natalism of the book of Ecclesiastes? Well. Everything occurs within a context, and so Judaism overall is so pro-natalist that uh, to have one one book of despair in your canon, not so bad, not so important. So you know, despair is part of life, and uh, Ecclesiastes gives gives voice to this you know, very common phenomenon of, of despair. And uh, I don't think many people live their lives by Ecclesiastes, but. Uh, there are times and places, you know, people are going to resonate with it. So I don't think that uh, Ecclesiastes Kohelet has had a huge effect on Jews who tend to reproduce at uh, an above average rate. Okay, let me. Apparently, some of the construction workers in Qatar were illegals from Nepal. They were jailed and were not allowed to buy tickets for the World Cup. That's very sad. Very, very sad. Let me find some more highlights here from. If you don't have traditional religion, you need to fill it with something to give your life meaning. So there's been a lot. Hey, Lars. The universal Jewish concern is the upper strain of the Jews. Those Jews were everyone. Because we had this connection to God, that we, that, that God spoke to us, that uh, we, we felt the sense of spirituality, a sense of an existence of God, and through the use of our reason, we were able, before others, this is going to be part of the idea of the mission of ethical monotheism, to come up with important ideas that any civilized society needs. Um, now, there is going to be a tension here between the stress on me. So now I'm on to the June 27th Black Shapiro lecture here, the rise of reform and the uh, rabbinic response. So talking about largely 19th century Germany reason and revelation, because although Geiger puts stress on reason, um, there are many reform leaders who actually believed in revelation of the Torah. There are plenty of reform leaders who, in contrast to Geiger, were complete believers that the Torah was revealed in its entirety. However, they believed that... So I see a lot of things in the news media kind of bemoaning how many construction workers died or were injured in building all these stadiums. Well, none of them are slaves. None of them were forced to go there. 
like workers went to Qatar because among other options this was the best option they saw for making money so yeah it was working in extreme heat but uh, it's not like they had a plethora of opportunities or they could just you know work from home producing you know legal documents all right so everything comes with a risk poverty comes with some pretty big uh, life and death risks that uh, within the Torah, it was also uh, understood that the laws are not eternal. They only apply in an era where you saw when you live among idolaters and pagans. That the Torah itself doesn't wish for you to keep them the ceremonial ritual law. But they believe the moral law was part of the divine revelation. So much so that Isaac Mayer Wise refused to hire Louis Ginsburg to teach in Cincinnati at the Hebrew Union College because he suspected that Louis Ginsburg wasn't adherent to the higher criticism. And Isaac Mayer Wise, the reform leader, believed in Torah in its entirety. In its entirety. So that's interesting. Isaac Mayer Weiss was one of the, probably the most important American Jewish reform rabbi in the 19th century, and he wouldn't hire Louis, Louis Ginsburg because he, Louis Ginsburg believed in the higher criticism. So, so Mayer Weiss, you know, believed in the divine origins of the Torah, and yet still was, yet still was, you know, a reformed Jew. Because you can believe that God gave every single word of the Pentateuch and still hold that it's not binding upon us today. So, yeah, God did this 3,200 years ago. It was, you know, appropriate for then, but uh, times have changed. It's no longer binding. So you can still believe in the divine nature of the Pentateuch and still hold that it's not binding on us today. Do I think that uh, the poor people in Nepal should reproduce? I don't have an opinion. How comparable is today's USA to Weimar Germany? Uh, I don't think it's very comparable at all. Yeah, my father believed in, you know, accepted biblical criticism and the, the documentary hypothesis. And he, he would often say the Bible was perfect for its purpose, that uh, the Bible was, you know, a work of man inspired by God, but that the fullest divine revelation was in the person of Jesus. So Christians have Jesus, that's their divine hook. Jews don't have Jesus. So it's much more important from a Jewish perspective that you regard the, the the Torah is, is divine. Uh, my father, yeah, probably a little more theologically conservative, but uh, he was kind of center center right theologically. And there's another question there from John Smith. Did my dad believe in evolution? Yeah, he believed that uh, God guided evolution. He didn't think that evolution was was a sufficient explanations for the for the glories and wonders of life and so he'd write against evolution and speak against evolution but perhaps privately if you spoke to him he would he would admit that, uh, that, that there was evolution within species i think he was much more skeptical of you know one species evolving into another species but uh, i don't think he would have had a, a big problem with divinely guided evolution Ecclesiastes and Job were President Eisenhower's favorite New Testament books, but they're both in the Old Testament. Obviously, this is what we call the ceremonial laws, and, uh, but none of this is eternal. It was valuable. It had its place, but we moved beyond it. Very different than Mendelssohn. As we saw from Mendelssohn, the ritual laws are eternal. They're binding. You can never get rid of them. Uh, for Geiger, you know what's binding? The moral law is binding. It, it, for, in Geiger's day, you, everyone knew what the moral law was. As we've seen in recent years, what used to be thought to be moral, today, immoral, today... Yeah, my father definitely did not believe that the world was 6,000 years old. He th thought that was ridiculous. He accepted 
their scientific explanations that the world was billions of years old. Things often regarded as not immoral, so even based morality, we have no understandings. But for Geiger, they hadn't yet reached that point. So the moral law is binding. The ceremonial law is made by people, and it can change over time. It's based on customs and traditions. If they remain meaningful, fine. If they're not meaningful, no. Is the anti-Christian historicism a net negative or a net positive? I don't know anything about Richard Carrier. Uh, I, I have no idea whether it's a net negative or net positive. I mean, I'm very much a historicist. I, I believe you can only understand everything within its historical context. So, so everything I, I say do today it takes place within a particular historical contest. What's, what's radical, you know, one day is normal and accident is you know, the law at another time. So I don't think you can understand anything without understanding it in its situation. So I'm a big believer in the power of situation. Now, for some people, I guess reading Richard Carrier, like it would damage their Christian faith and so it would have a negative, probably a negative effect on their lives. So some people leave Christianity and they become better, happier, more effective people. You know, other people leave Christianity and uh, they become degenerates. So some people leave Judaism, become happy, healthier, more effective, and nicer people. Other people leave Judaism and become degenerates. So it's not not clear. Um, so now we know what's eternal and what's not eternal. Now we also see that what determines what's the arbiter. It's human reason. And John says, I think on the whole, religion does more harm than good. Some social progress. I think for some people in some societies that sometimes in history does more harm than good, but given that it's it's virtually universal, the need for religion seems seems like a biological necessity. You can't live without a hero system, and religion is just one form of hero system. So John Smith, you have a hero system. You tie yourself into some something transcendent. You believe that you're aligning with you know the forces of history or the forces of good or true or righteousness, right? Everyone has a hero system, which is based on a substantial leap of, of faith. Yeah, but even as a nihilist, I'm sure that there are still things that you uh, believe in, right? Everyone, everyone needs a hero system. Everyone you know, needs some way of uh, you know, believing that their life has meaning and that their decisions have meaning, their actions have meaning. conscience. But this doesn't mean that uh, everything is reason. No, I would say that remember, Judaism is a religion. It's not just uh, some sort of Aristotelian uh, understanding of how to live. And every generation is going to express itself in ways that are spiritual. But every generation has to find it. Every generation will find ceremonies that speak to them. So Geiger is not saying get rid of ceremonies. Rather, we find ceremonies that speak to us. And every generation will find it. But the job of the ceremonies is simply to give us religious inspiration. But they're, 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 they're like the kernel. They can be changed. It is true. That there were some reformers, even proto-reformers, who were almost carrots, and that they wanted to get rid of the Talmud, and they wanted to go back just to the Bible, but this is not kind of way. Geiger saw the, um, the Talmud as another stage in the development of Judaism. The rabbinic period is an important stage, and it's an authentic stage, but we move beyond it. And, uh, and Geiger speaks about how in our contemporary strivings, we will listen to the voices of the ancients, and to discover the genuine spirit in the Talmud. But the point is that there's a spirit in the Bible, and there's a spirit in the Talmud. Every generation moves on. What is the essence? Yeah, Elliot Blass says, I find people without a link to the transcendent boring. So, 
some kind of link to the transcendent seems to be almost a biological necessity. That everybody has some sort of code that they live by. Everybody subscribes to some sort of you know, hero system to, to give their life you know, transcendent meaning, whether they're religious or secular. If you can point to an essence for Geiger, and Geiger points to the prophets. If you want to know what the essence is, in a spiritual sense, we know, as I said, the Ten Commandments, uh, things like that. But if you want to see how it plays out in action, look to the prophets. The prophets, for Geiger, they recognize that the, the rituals were secondary. And there's all sorts of psukim where the prophets speak about, uh, the prophets say, you know, you weren't commanded on sacrifice, hard to know what they mean. But when you were commanded, the Torah is not full of these commandments. So it seems to me that they're saying that uh, these are not the essential commands, the most important commands. So for Geiger, if you look at the prophets, what do they have? They have concern for the poor, concern for the widow, concern for the orphan. Uh, the rituals and how their usefulness to stand in opposition uh, to true. Okay, what is a hero system exactly? So most people are scared to death of insignificance. Most people are scared to death of the idea that their life has no meaning or purpose and that when they're gone, it won't make any difference. So to ward off this feeling of insignificance, people subscribe to some sort of hero system. So for some people, it's science, right? the pursuit of scientific truth, you know, whatever virtues they ascribe to science, right, that's what gives their life meaning. So they will you know, slave all day and all night they're in the service of science because that gives their life meaning. Other people get their meaning in life from their sports team. So they kind of merge their identity into that of their sports team. And, you know, their, their sports team serves the role of, you know, heroes and prophets and, and teachers and, and people who you know, walk the true and the good path in life. So hero system is some sort of system that transcends yourself and that by attaching yourself to it, you get meaning. So for a Jewish hero system, by performing the commandments of Judaism, you know, following the dictates of Judaism, participating in Judaism, you connect yourself to like a 4,000-year-old tradition. And so you're part of something that, that goes you know, that goes way back in history and will go you know, far forward in history. So you're not insignificant. You're part of you know, an eternal people that will last thousands of years forward. John says, I have found embracing the meaningless of life, particularly my life, has been a relief and not a burden psychologically. And then other people get meaning in life out of gardening, right? They, they feel themselves part of, of nature, part of the cultivation of nature, the beautification of nature, the you know, horticulture, right? just absolutely absorbs them. And so by absorbing themselves into horticulture, they feel attached to something that transcends their own individual life. Other people transcend their life by belonging to a 12-step program, so helping people with a particular addiction. Right? That gives their life long-lasting meaning that goes beyond them because they've been able to help other people, and these people will help others, and so there may be a, you know, a long chain of people that they've been able to help. Uh, other people get their meaning in life from fishing, from uh, you know, pursuing hobbies, woodworking, you know, creating beautiful things, and showing other people how to create beautiful things, the, the pursuit of beauty, and that and the aesthetic, right, this becomes something that transcends their own individual self and uh, goes on down through history and uh, that, that gives their life meaning. True spirituality, they can uh, jettison them. Uh, uh, today we call this social justice. Uh, and they believed in God. They believed in the one God, obviously, and they believed in a bright future of humanity. We're moving to a better place. Geiger could point to the fact that 19th century Germany was more civilized and more advanced than medieval times. Obviously, that was the case. Uh, and the source of the ideals of the prophets is God. Uh, 
because they were inspired by God's search and to come up with these ideas. Uh, so I believe it was the intellectual Ernest Becker who talked about hero systems and how we have a need for hero systems. I think it may have been in his book, The Fear of Death. But our greatest fear with death, with regard to death, is being insignificant, Ernest Becker held. And so to ward off this feeling of insignificance, we create uh, hero systems. Yeah, via YouTube live streams, I can be immortal. <laughs> and nationalism is another way many people feel feel the, the need for significance. You, you attach yourself to something that's long, longer lasting than yourself. So therefore, Geiger sees value in rituals if they have meaning. And he kept kosher. It might surprise you. Geiger kept kosher. Does that mean that he was not good on uh, you know, all the things? No, but uh, he would not eat pork, things like that. He was, because he had value. It gave spirituality to our lives. It added holiness to our lives. On the other hand, uh, because it's up to Geiger to decide what gives spirituality, he can also decide that circumcision was, quote, barbaric, uh, a barbaric and bloody act. That's what he said, Geiger. Um, now, as I recall, he says this in a private email, a private letter. So I don't believe he ever publicly advocated getting rid of circumcision. Later, you'd have to form leaders definitely got rid of circumcision. As far as I recall, he never publicly spoke about this, but privately thought it was a barbaric act. Uh, why is it barbaric? Because it's not a, uh, in his mind, it's not a representation, I guess you could say, of the Jewish spirit. He, didn't, he wouldn't fast on Tisha B'Av. Did he fast on Yom Kippur? As far as I know, he did. But we know he didn't fast on Tisha B'Av. He tells us he didn't fast because uh, today, for Geiger, we're not the mourning over the temple in the country. History has shown that the destruction of the temple was a positive thing because it led to a different type of Judaism, a more advanced type of Judaism, one not focused on sacrifices in the temple. Uh, Geiger has often been criticized for uh, really being an advocate of this idea of Germans of a mosaic persuasion, although as far as I know, he never used that expression. And there is some truth to this. Um, during the 1840 Damascus affair, there was a um, Catholic um, monk or friar uh, and his Muslim uh, servant in Damascus who um, were killed. And uh, the, uh, the story was that uh, it was the Jews who did it to, to take his, uh, to use the blood to make matzah. And um, Geiger didn't get involved with this. He said that, um, in fact, hold on a second, I just want to there's a, um, I saw something interesting before on this, um, yeah, um, actually they, they, they disappeared, and it's, uh, I don't think they found them again, uh, they, they, they disappeared, so of course, you know, whenever, uh, uh, people disappeared, it was the Jews, uh, uh, you know, this is a European thing, not the blood libel. There was a French uh, consulate, we've got the rest of the consulate called, who was pushing this, but, uh, it created a big, uh, problem where, uh, the Jews were blamed for this, and Geiger didn't get involved. Geiger said that, um, I'm involved in Jewish spiritual and intellectual development, but when it comes to physical, you know, that this is a human problem, that the Jews are being oppressed there. This is, I, I relate to them like I relate to many humans who are being oppressed. Uh, there's nothing specifically Jewish about it. It's like, Geiger's really an early example of uh, this uh, this progressive attitude that uh, we see today, he's being progressive, where uh, you don't want to have any particularism, and that the, God forbid that you'd uh, be more concerned about Jews than anyone else, because then that shows that you're particularistic and you're a nation, and uh, we can't have that. Uh, uh, although it needs also to be said that the later in life, uh, when Jews were being persecuted uh, in Romania, he did try to get the Prussian government to intervene. So yeah, this viewpoint of his is not, I guess, uh, a consistent one. But if you... So if you're an intellectual, should you interrupt now, interrupt your work to try to help out individuals. Well, sometimes you should, sometimes you shouldn't. And sometimes your intellectual work you know, is more important than helping out individuals. Maybe you're not going to be particularly effective at helping out individuals. So there are always many ways to distract yourself, but you know, I think it helps in life to have some sort of primary mission and to put your primary energy into that primary mission. Read his essay um, or his letter explaining why he doesn't intervene or why he doesn't want to intervene in the Damascus affair. It's really, I think, I have it here. It's, uh, it's really pathetic. Uh, um, he says, That which goes on among the Jews living in the uncivilized country is of trifling importance. Um, he says, The only thing that interests him 
the universal Jewish concern is uh, the upper stratum of the Jews. There's those, those Jews who are uh, advanced intellectually and spiritually. So it's really a, it's a reflection. It's no different, I think, than how the, the German Jews related to many of the East European Jews as well. That uh, they look at them almost as different species. Um, he said it's a good humanitarian deed to take up the cause, but it's not a Jewish problem uh, per se. Kind of, you see this with Paul Gottfried, right? Paul Gottfried, his ancestors are from Germany. So there's been tendency in Jewish life for you know, Jews from Western Europe and Central Europe to look down on Eastern European Jews as uncultured and fanatical and, and barbaric and as a entirely different species, you know, just wild-eyed and fanatical. So Jews of Western European origins like Paul Gottfried, okay, Hungarian, yeah. So Jews from Western Central European origins, right, they tend to come from hundreds of years with generally positive views of non-Jews, respect and admiration for the accomplishments of non-Jews, while Jews from Eastern European backgrounds had ancestors who for hundreds of years lived in an atmosphere of mutual you know, fear and loathing of non-Jews. So Jews of Western European origins tended to be more affluent, tended to be the first Jews to the United States, they tend to look down on their wild-eyed, you know, uncouth, uncultured you know, Eastern European brothers as, you know, a different species. Yeah. Nevertheless, I think in conclusion, if I... So Jews of Eastern European origins tend to be much more radical in their politics, you know, whether radical right or left. Uh, Jews of Western European origins tend to be much more centrist, center-right, uh, tend to be Republicans. About this, you have to say that he was a proud Jew, because like I said, uh, in his own way, he didn't believe in reform to gain equality. He, didn't, he, he thought equality would come, but he didn't, uh, he, that's not what it was about. Uh, and he also didn't believe in a radical break with tradition that so many other reformers wanted it. Uh, and he, he was honest enough to acknowledge that Judaism is still developing. And uh, it's hard to know where in the end it would uh, end up. He supported reform, obviously, but it had to be historical. And that revolution, from whole time, was engaged in revolution. Uh, he wasn't. So uh, really, when you look at reformers, uh, Geiger is not the most radical. On the contrary, in fact, earlier, he, at first he thought that the rabbis could push, uh, as well as Michael Meyer, that the rabbis could push the reform. But later, he sort of backed off and said that uh, the people would push the reform and the rabbis go along with it. Okay, so now he has the question. Geiger's a proud Jew. But what's valuable about being Jewish? Why the Jewish? What does Jew Judaism add to the 19th century in Germany? Such an advanced culture, advanced Protestant culture, great philosophers. Uh... Okay, any comment on the signification of Sydney? Well, the Chinese Communist Party is definitely trying to use money and uh, bribery and everything they can to influence Australian politics. You have, you have Australian politicians who you know, being convicted of taking bribes from the Chinese Communists. The Chinese have bought you know, a ton of uh, real estate in Australia in general and in Sydney in particular. But uh, Australia's woken up to the Chinese threat. Australia's been pretty tough against China the, the past three years, so I don't see Australia as just a bunch of dupes that don't see Australia just lying on the bed and getting screwed by, by China. Uh, as for the shooting up of that gay nightclub, notice how the news media is really eager to portray these brave patrons as fighting back, and they may indeed be you know, super brave and amazing, fantastic, altruistic uh, people. But I think part of the reason for the news media wanting to highlight that is that they want to fight against you know, stereotypes of you know, gay cowardice and gay passivity. So I don't know if they're overreacting to negative stereotypes about gays and gay clubs going out of their way to say heroic, how heroic these people are, or they're reflecting something that's real. Uh, and why, why should it be viewed then as equal to um, Christianity?
And uh, yeah, speaking of so speaking of what happened at that nightclub, there's an interesting article in the Atlantic by Juliet Kayam. She's a, a lefty, and she says uh, we may need to rethink the advice we give. Rethink run, hide, fight. So a mass shooting guidance may be woefully out of date. So last night, at least. Five people were killed, 25 injured in a shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And it comes against a backdrop of continuing threats and vilification of the LGBTQ community. Early reports say the suspect who was alive was in possession of a long gun. Might have killed many more people in such a confined space. Enough the actions of pointing to police at least two heroic people inside the club. They believe to have confronted the gunman and stopped the in-progress massacre. So run, hide, fight has been the guiding principle in the security profession for decades. You know, running is supposed to be your preferred response to a mass shooting. Hiding is the only responsible choice. If you can't run, and then if you can't run and you can't hide, then you should fight back. Right? That's what people get taught. You know, see to, try to run can't run, try to hide, can't run or hide, then you have no other option than fight back. But uh, given that 70% of active shooter situations end before they survive, maybe we need a new approach. Maybe when it comes to general safety, maybe we need to put more priority on fighting right? instead, of, instead of hiding. But maybe we need to encourage people to not, not primarily look to run, don't primarily look to hide. Maybe we need to encourage people to look to fight. And yeah, maybe we need more concealed carry as well. It's a lot easier to fight when you have a gun. So a lot of mass shootings have been ended by people fighting a gunman. And they've often sacrificed their lives, but they've prevented you know, much wider loss of life. Sometimes these mass shootings have been prevented by good people carrying guns. Back to Mark Shapiro. All the oracles answer this question, and they coined this expression, which we know in English as the mission of Israel. And now, what does it mean, mission of Israel? Mission is not just being missionaries, like uh, going out and converting people. We have not done that in a long, long time. Although, if you look in the New Testament, there's a passage there that uh, speaks about Jews um, uh, looking to get converts. And we know about this Herod. Herod's uh, for... So forefathers, uh, grandparents, great-grandparents, I forget now, uh, were um, forced to be converted. So there have been times that Jews were interested in, uh, in converts. But that's not what it means. Uh, the, the mission of Israel, as Geiger and other reform leaders see it, is that Jews have a mission to disseminate the moral teachings of Judaism to the rest of the world. Not by converting them, but by bringing them in their own religions to knowledge of these doctrines that we Jews possess. So we have. So is the reform in the 19th century who started advocating for ethical monotheism. There's one God whose primary demand of his creatures is ethical behavior. I don't think we'll ever have concealed carry legislation in Australia. No, <laughs> not right now. There seems to be absolutely no impetus. And Australians are absolutely convinced the reason they're so safe is because they make it next to impossible to you know, legally own and carry a gun. So right now I don't see any significant public sentiment for concealed carry in Australia. Uh, all the doctrines that you see in the Ten Commandments and uh, doctrines about how to help the poor and the middle, all these things, doctrines of a pure God, this is going to be one of the issues, because uh, they do believe in a pure idea of God, so Jesus is going to be a problem, so although they don't want to rock the boat, the reform leaders understand that uh, they're 
something important that Judaism could give to the West, namely a more pure idea of Judaism, because men like Guy are obviously rejected the idea that God is in human form. Jesus, uh, so we Jews, although we're small, we're a minority, we're going to teach you, that's our mission, we're going we're gonna to teach you not just through doctrines, but through our life. We live a moral life. Jews are not involved in war. Jews are involved in, uh, in immorality, much less than everyone else. So we've preserved a moral, pure way of life. And, if we're, and we're going to model it for the world. Sound um, ethnocentric? It was. And believe it or not, that's the reason why, of all the Reformed doctrines, today, Reformed Jews, this is the one they want nothing to do with. And if you imagine Reformers today think about the mission of Israel, that, that makes it seem like we're better than other people, or that we have something special. No, no, that's, that's going to be something that modern Reformers don't want. Um, and but for people like Eicher, we are going to, through modeling this through the mission of Israel, we will help bring the world, the nations of the world, to the Messianic era. Now, what's the Messianic era? The Messianic era, it has nothing to do with uh, you know, prophets or supernatural interventions or anything like that. The Messianic era, or, or personal aside for that matter, the Messianic era is an era when the world, like Isaiah says, there's no more war. When people respect one another, when they live in peace, that is the Messianic era. That's what God wants. Uh, earlier generations couldn't appreciate this. They could only imagine a time because they were living on pagans and barbarians. They could only imagine a time when they'd have to leave these pagan, pagans and barbarians and make their way from the four corners of the earth to the land of Israel where they could create a moral society. That's why they imagine this Messianic vision of return to Israel and building the temple. But today, we live among civilized people, uh, dignified people. So therefore, we have no desire, and God doesn't have a desire for us to return to the land of Israel and start worshiping in an old-fashioned way. No. The Messianic era will take place in every civilized society, and that's what God wants. So it's monotheism, it's personal morality, and and, and it's joined even early on with what we would call social justice. And this, the social, although the ethical monotheism has been genesis from Reform Judaism today because it seems too ethnocentric uh, and too uh, haughty, I guess, uh, that makes us too special. Social justice not only has it not been jettisoned, social justice for Reform Judaism became the central feature of Reform So this message that like Jews had a divine mission to teach the world about ethical monotheism, this is what got me so excited. In the early 1990s, Dennis Prager's presentation of Judaism as the embodiment, the quintessence of ethical monotheism. Right? This has got my motor going during my conversion to Judaism. So now I've, I've changed my thinking. I don't think people are primarily changed ethically, morally by instruction such as ethical monotheism and people are primarily morally improved by improving the quality of their connections first of all with themselves second of all with other people so people are at ease with themselves and their friends family community tend to be at ease with others and tend to generally act in a pro-social and ethical way but people who are alienated from themselves alienated from other people alienated from the community people who lack close connections these are the most dangerous people Right? And so far more important than inculcating people in ethical monotheism is anything you can do to help people come to terms with themselves, with their own flaws, their own reality, their own history, and come to terms with the flawed nature of other people around them so that they can then move on to have better relations with themselves, first of all, and with others. And then people tend to behave much more ethically. Help improve social welfare of society is a hallmark. It's a defining characteristic today. Uh, they term it tikkun olam. Tikkun olam. It's only really from the 1960s that tikkun olam comes to mean uh, social justice. Uh, tikkun olam has Marianic connotations, and uh, uh, if you go back to the Talmud, you can. So tikkun olam, repairing the world, is in the Aleinu prayer, which is, goes back approximately 2,000 years. But that's repairing the world under the rule of God. It's not, you know, repairing the world under left-wing socialist politics. So. This notion that tikkun olam means left-wing social justice politics, right, that's only about 50 years old.
we can have some more type of expressions that talk about you know making good decrees so that the society functions. But tikkun olam, in the sense, it's a great expression. And I don't know who was the first to coin it, uh, but I believe it's from the 60s, certainly not in the 50s. Uh, but the other, I mean, in the 50s, you had people speaking about civil rights, things like that. So you had this notion: look, if you get rid of uh, Jewish law, if you don't have halacha, you need to fill it with something else. So what do you fill it with? You fill it with um, something which is part and parcel of, of Judaism, social justice. I hate to say it, but if you start reading passages today from Isaiah. People think you're a reformed Jew. You go to Orthodox school, you start doing it, then I think you're a reformed Jew. But that's because the Orthodox have forgotten a large measure, just like the reform forgot a large measure. So the Orthodox have only been focused on Halakha and reform. They don't have Halakha, so they focus on uh, Isaiah. But the truth is that they both are necessary, and they're both vital. And Isaiah himself kept Halakha. So you can't get rid of them. Uh, you can't get us in it. If you look in, um, take a look in, um, in, in uh, chapter uh, 18, 19, I forget which one it is, where you get the, the important Suki, Hatariach Kamacha, trust plates and measures, and Jackie Malcolm Wiggle, and the poor people, and all that. Right next to that, you have things dealing with uh, no tattoos and shading with a razor and sexual crimes. In other words, the ritual and the, uh, the social and the moral, we combine them. They're all together, and you see that very clearly in that chapter. I think it's chapter 19 of Vayikra. Unlike what the Reformers said, unlike what the Christians said, that you have to divide the ceremonial ritual. The ritual is only temporary. It's not eternal. So that can be great. We still can hold on to the moral. But you see that the ritual and the moral are intertwined, and uh, you can't have uh, one without the other. Uh, but it is to become a hallmark of so the movement, the reform movement of social justice. I and mean, even it's the center for social action. It was directed by David Zepperstein. Uh, I don't know if he's tired yet, but uh, and the movement is committed to uh, liberal, liberalism and of liberalism. Because you had some of these early reform leaders who were so anti rabbinic that uh, they almost became Karaites. Uh, but he, he wrote in one of his last essays during the Judge Bork uh, conference. Let me see here if I can uh, quickly. So uh, I never met uh, Potachowski. Uh, I always wanted to. Uh, he dies in uh, 1991. So uh, that was, uh, um, yeah, so it was the 1980s. It was under Reagan that uh, Justice Bork, Judge Bork uh, was, uh, they nominated him. Uh, um, am I right about that? Um, was it, um, yeah, it was definitely was, uh, it was President Reagan. So, uh, Petrovsky wrote an essay in which he said he walked into a reform synagogue. He was a leading reform uh, thinker. And he said, right as he walked in on the right, there was petitions there uh, to send to your uh, senator to oppose uh, Judge Bork uh, being raised to the Supreme Court. And he concluded from that that reform Judaism had failed because uh, it had become liberalism with a Jewish flavor. And as an old reform Jew, uh, Petrovsky's point was that it's fine to be liberal, but. Uh, Reform Judaism can't just be a, a branch of the Democratic Party. It has to be Judaism. And uh, you know, Republicans also have to be welcome in Reform Judaism. Um, uh, let, me, uh, let me make another point before I go on. Uh, instead, I don't, you know, it's, it's tough sometimes, I think, for a conservative with a small c Jew to be reformed because the movement itself is so tied to uh, social justice. And uh, But it's not just the reform movement. We see this um, in the world at large as well. Yeah, if you go to a reform synagogue, right, at most, five percent of the congregation will be on the right, and ninety-nine percent of rabbis, reform rabbis, are on the left. Conservative congregation, probably you know, more than ninety percent, will be on the left. You know, fewer than ten percent will be on the right. Modern Orthodox congregation, probably sixty percent, will be Republicans. You know, forty percent Democrats, and then traditional Orthodox will be 80-90% Republicans to 10-20% Democrats. For example, I'll take wokeism, for instance, uh, anti-racism, all these movements you have here. People need something. They need something to come them. They need some purpose in life. If you don't have traditional religion, you need to fill it with something to give your life meaning. So there's been a lot. Andrew Sullivan, and, uh, John Porter 
book on this side. Hold on a second. I'll, uh, I'll show you uh, in which uh, he makes this case. He calls woke racism how a new religion has betrayed um, black America. But his point is that wokeism and social justice, that these are religions. And there's a lot of truth, I think, to this. That, um, the way, in fact, he has this. Let me, I'll just play you something here. Um, on, because I think what you see in religion is that social justice became the religion as they were lacking in traditional religion. You see this in the world at large in wokeism uh, and progressivism. That it's become their own religion. And one of the early uh, people to speak about this, although he focuses more on anti racism, not on wokeism as a well, whole. to playing some uh, Richard Spencer here. And Haas was also mentioning this concept. Um, it's actually a Russian word called the Narod. Uh, there was actually a Russian social movement called the Narodnik. Now, Narod, I am not a Russian speaker, but to the degree that I understand it, Narod is comparable to the word populist, or in the German language that I'm much more familiar with, the adjective folkish, or das Volk. Um, I, uh, I would remind you, in, uh, during the fall of the Soviet Union, when there were protests in East Germany, in which the original protest line was, Wir sind das Volk, which means, we are the people. And it was basically a call for a better version of communism, a communism that listens to the people, that is able to change, and is able to at least recognize some of the obvious problems of the regime. Maybe a communism that's more democratic, you say, Wir sind das Volk, we are the people. That eventually started to change and transform as the collapse of the Soviet Union progressed to Wirzat Einfolk, which means we are a people. In other words, it transformed into a call for the reunification of the entire country of Germany. Um, and it was a populist call, but of course the word folkish or folk could also be translated as race um, or not just people or ethnic group, I guess, although that's a less punchy translation. Um, it is a call to a people in the same way that Trump's mention of the wall, whatever he might have meant by it, whatever its intentions, was a folkish uh, call. It was a defining of a people in just a single word. And so Haas was evoking this idea of the Narod, which means populist. Now, there was an interesting controversy in the early 20th century. Um, this morning, I actually read uh, Vladimir Lenin's uh, short article, The Proletariat and the Peasantry, and it actually gets to this issue with Marxism uh, in the sense of what do you do with the peasants in Russia? Now, as you probably know, there, there is this kind of contradiction um, or, or, or at least something that's rather interesting and kind of unpredictable about the fact that a Marxist revolution occurred in Russia and not, say, in Paris or London. 
um, according to a certain orthodox Marxism, any kind of proletarian revolution would have occurred in London um, or Paris or Berlin or New York or something. That is precisely where the urban proletariat is found. Uh, that's where it is most advanced and thus most likely to spill over into a new stage of history. Russia rushes backwards. Uh, the peasants were only liberated in the 1860s, and, and obviously Marxists would look at that as a kind of false liberation. You weren't literally bound to the land, but you're still susceptible to capital. You haven't reached human emancipation, which is what a Marxist wants. Um, you're, you've simply reached a kind of political emancipation, and maybe an emancipation in name only. So what do you do with Russia? It, it's seemingly 100 years behind Germany or England or, or the United States. It's just it's a different... It's a different world. And what do you do with this? Um, well, Lenin was arguing explicitly uh, that this is a unique situation, but this doesn't mean that the peasants as well can't be a revolutionary subject. And he called upon that Narot sentiment of the people, and in, and in Russia's case, the peasants. Um, so Haas was kind of trying to connect this, I think, with Amer the American middle being a kind of revolutionary subject. Now, that doesn't mean that the people who support MAGA are impoverished uh, proletarian workers. In fact, many of them are truck drivers. They might even own their own truck. Uh, many of them might be the little bosses of capitalism. They might have a sandwich shop in some town and have employees. Um, they might be a sole proprietor. They might own their own toil tools and be a plumber. Uh, they might even be a bit wealthy. Uh, you can make a lot of money if you're a successful plumber or a successful electrician. You're, you're certainly middle class if you succeed at those things. But he sees them as revolutionary in the sense that they are totally alienated from mainstream institutions in the way that... Right, so as the left dominates almost all our institutions, that people feel alienated who aren't on the left and they want to overthrow our current elites. That seems normal, natural, healthy. Depends how you go about it. You can go about it in a stupid destructive, illegal, in a criminal, idiotic way, or you can do it in a smart, productive way. At other uh, proletarian forces are not. And so, you know, a, uh, he was using the metaphor of a barista. It's like a, a girl who works at a coffee shop and who has a undergraduate degree from NYU and is working as a barista and votes for Joe Biden. She's in a way not alienated from the institutions. Even if she makes $25,000 a year and an electrician in Nebraska makes $90,000 a year, but is kind of, again, alienated from contemporary American institutions. So obviously someone who's, say, working on Wall Street or is a professor. Okay, so anyone who's right wing is going to be alienated from our dominant institutions today, which are seemingly controlled by the left public or private institution, or even a public school teacher, or someone in corporate America, um, they have so much to lose by a social transformation. Uh, a social transformation that would jeopardize the system that they ultimately benefit from in big ways, uh, in the case of the uh, Wall Street executive, and in small ways, let's say in the case of a, a public school teacher. But nevertheless, they are tied to the system. They want it to succeed, and they might even protect it with their life, because it gives them their livelihood, you could say. Now, in the case of the folkish American proletariat, they are alienated from these institutions. They see taxes as just simply a cost to them that they can't really bear. 
uh, they don't see any benefit. Yeah. yeah, I think you see Trump voters feeling increasingly alienated from America and its institutions. That's why they want to take back the country. They, they feel the country slipping away out of their grasp to becoming something unrecognizable. In financial or academic or civic institutions. All of these things are just cost to them or a club to which they're not invited to join. And thus, they become a kind of revolutionary subject. They have nothing to lose but their chains. They are exactly the type of population that would attack existing institutions and seek to transform society. <clears throat> now, again, I am not a Marxist, <laughs> as I'm sure you know. Uh, but I do admire Marx as an intellectual. Uh, I don't. Why? Like, why would you admire Marx? Like, what is so admirable about Marx? That I don't get. Like, what are the insides that are unique to Marx? Like, I don't get why would anyone admire Karl Marx? I just don't know anything that he was right about. I don't know anything he said that was new, that was true, or anything true that he said that was that was new. I don't get this. I don't also think that you should associate Marx or equate Marx with, say, the Soviet Union. So every time people have tried to implement Marxism, it's been absolutely horrible. But uh, Marx is great. Really? He was a remarkable 19th century thinker in line with Nietzsche or uh, even Freud, I guess, in the 20th century. Okay, so Marx and Freud. Right? I think uh, Paul Johnson wrote a book called The Enemies of the People. Right? Yeah, I think listing Marx with Freud is telling because Freud was overwhelmingly a, you know, a journey in a wrong direction. Right? I think Freudianism has overwhelmingly been a force for ill. Marxism has overwhelmingly been a force for ill. So thinking Marx and Freud there, I absolutely agree with Richard Spencer. I just disagree that these are great thinkers, important intellectuals, people showing us the way. These were remarkable intellectuals who did turn thought on its head. So I do admire them, and I... Yeah, they turned thought on its head in the wrong direction. Right? They led us in the wrong direction. They did far more harm than good. See the Marxists, and just because there might be this association, fair or otherwise, with you know communism and all these things that I generally don't like, doesn't mean that you can't find insights in his work. Doesn't mean look every time Marxism was tried, it was awful, absolutely awful. Right? When Freudianism has been put into practice, right? it's been at best a waste of time. It's been a mass delusion. So I, I don't sympathize with this praise for Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud. Does it mean that he isn't kind of telling you something? And um, yeah, uh, I think every, every person should be, uh, and every writer should be judged uh, by the merits and not necessarily by their associations. But anyway, what I... I think it's fair to judge you know, writers by, by the product of their writing and their thinking. And if you're leading people down a dark tunnel, if every time your thought is implemented it makes the world a worse place. Yeah, I think it's fair to judge you for that. What I would say to this is that I, I do find this theory compelling. But in, in a way, we've already seen what could possibly come from a uh, revolutionary American proletariat. And what we saw of that was something like January 6th. Now, you could say that January 6th, it was, oh, it was all about QAnon, this crazy conspiracy. It was all about... Um, the big lie that is Donald Trump's insistence that he didn't lose the 2020 election. 
which might very well have been motivated by his. I think January 6th was a rude explosion by people who were unwilling to give power to processes that they didn't understand, that they thought were illegitimate. And so they rose up and said, enough. And I want them prosecuted to the full extent of the law. But I have some sympathy for the energy. His obviously malignant narcissism, just this, his refusal to accept any sort of defeat, because he doesn't have a stable sense of self, and, and losing would mean breaking his person, and that's just something he couldn't abide. And he just spread this lie, this narcissistic lie among his followers, and they had to pay the price. They were the ones who got arrested. We'll see if Trump does get arrested, but uh, at least for now, he's uh, uh, got away scot-free from January 6th, even though he was obviously involved in it. And all of that is true. I actually don't deny any of that, as you can probably tell. But was there something more about it? Even if those people who invaded the Capitol and, and at least came to the Capitol on January 6th, and I, I don't know, I've seen estimates, I don't quite know how many there are, um, uh, uh, tens of thousands at the very least. It was a huge amount of people, and for every one person who came to the Capitol on January 6th, there were probably a hundred or a thousand more who wanted to be there or who were following it closely or who sympathized with exactly what they were doing. And they were revolutionary. I mean, you, you really can't deny it. And this is why I really can't stand. Yeah, they were revolutionary. And what they did seemed absolutely idiotic and criminal. But it, it may galvanize. It may create you know, a winning movement. Like January 6th in and of itself was a loser of an event. You know, it created tremendous backlash. But it may catalyze energy. It may develop a movement that uh, down the road wins. So, on its face, January 6th was just a loser. But uh, January 6th didn't just occur in a vacuum, right? It also influenced people, catalyzed people, you know, helped to grow a movement. And a lot of the conservative apologists, you could say, about January 6th, they're like, oh, well, you know, things got out of hand, there were a few bad apples, but, you know, it was just a lawful protest, or people who say, it didn't get out of hand. It was all Antifa or something like that. Or the guards opened up the doors and encouraged people to go in. All of that is a total misrepresentation. There are videos of the guards, by the way, kind of opening up the doors, but there are also videos of uh, dramatic, violent confrontations with police. So you, you, know, you have to balance both of those things. Anyway, I can't stand any of that apologist that you see from Tucker Carlson or from you know, American Greatness or something uh, at the blog, or that, you, um, that you'll sometimes hear on, you know, more out, outlandish podcasts about how Antifa did it. I think MTG might actually believe that, but I can't stand all of that stuff. It's all a bunch of lies. And in many ways, it misrepresents and demeans the sincerity of the January 6th protesters. And I am not on their side. I was totally out of the loop of that stuff. I did not support it. I found it laughable and buffoonish, but I won't, denounce, I won't doubt their sincerity. They're feeling that they were part of something bigger than themselves. That they were. Okay, so they had a hero system, right? Sometimes your hero system leads you down a dark criminal corridor, which appears to be the case here. Uh, sincerity doesn't really count for anything, right? Sincerity doesn't make you any more likely to be productive, efficient, effective, good, righteous. Sincerity is not a positive virtue in and of itself. They were actually engaging in a kind of revolution. They wanted to hang Mike Pence. That was a novelty uh, gallows, you could say, but uh, they got their hands on him. He probably would have hanged him, to be frank. Uh, there were some funny videos of a one woman who was interviewed by... Okay, so we'll follow the revolution to be continued. Bye-bye.
Better time to listen to some Richard Spencer here than at the end of the world. Okay, I was just wondering, because, you know, I, I thought uh, some of the videos you guys did get that, no, then that's no uh, slight at Ed Dutton. Talking about these days, right. Richard I, I, I thought, and uh, Mark Brahman. Millennial Woes was a pretty and millennial uh, yeah, intelligent I, uh, guy at times. He's an intelligent guy. Um, I would certainly be willing to do something with him, but... Um, yeah, I, mean, there, there was a... I think Richard's main problem with Millennial Woes is aesthetic. He just finds him dumpy and grubby. There's a real, uh, you know, there's a just kind of clickish kind of stuff going on. And I guess I'm a click of one. So, uh, yeah. But I'm not, I don't have anything, nothing happens. And I don't have any ill will or anything. Um, at the same time, I, I kind of want to move past a lot of that stuff, to be honest. Um, just the white nationalism, it just, uh, uh, just bores me. I don't, I don't, Frank. I wouldn't call him a white nationalist. Well, okay, but, uh. <laughs> of course, Millennial <laughs> was. <laughs> it's a really good description. Um. That was all, thank you. Yeah, no problem. Mike. Hey, hi, uh, Richard. I stopped calling you Rich. Okay. Um, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, I, I was watching or listening to a Nick Fuentes, um, Spacey had, I think, and you were in it. It was about four weeks ago, and you two hadn't talked in years. And what a nice meeting that was. You were both very gracious towards each other, even though you have some uh, opposing uh, ideology. And uh, it was really nice seeing that. Uh, he gave he gave his analysis of you afterwards. I thought it was pretty good. He said I, he had told you for years, or he had told you not for years, but he, he said, look, you're an intellectual, you're an elitist, and you write well. You should stick to writing and not go on these uh, tours. Uh, he said it just wasn't something that uh, you, you were really built for. Um, I thought nice you did. I thought it was a bit rude what he said afterwards, to be honest oh. with you. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't. I thought he gave Richard a lot. He, he called Richard an intellectual oh, goal. Yeah. I, uh, uh, I was not expecting that. I, um, I I was looking at Twitter as I was working there. There was a space with a couple hundred people in it, and I was curious. Lo and behold, Nick was there. It was rather surprising. I, I actually was expecting, um, you know, this you know, typical Quintez, you know, insult barrage. But I served all across the court um, in a respectful manner, and it was returned. So I thought that was good. Um, I will say this about... Um, I do think that there's kind of a man behind the mask, so to speak. Maybe it's a kid wearing a Darth Vader helmet, but there's still, like, someone there. And uh, so I, I do think he's able to listen or things like that. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, criticism of me, I mean, whatever. I mean, I, yeah, I appreciate being called a good writer and so on. Um, I, uh, I do think that I'm good in front of a crowd, but that probably can't happen um, in, because of the world we live in. But we'll see. Uh, but I think the main thing is I really don't want to go down the path again because the path doesn't really lead anywhere. I mean, the path that you tread being a kind of Trump fan is the path towards January 6th or something like that. Um, I mean, that's the way that Nick is used. I mean, Nick is very good in front of a crowd. He is very good on his live streams. He has a organic audience, um, unlike many conservatives. But that, if he's playing the game of being, at the end of the day, a Republican or Trump cheerleader, there will be people who will ultimately use him for their own ends. People who don't have an organic audience, who don't have charisma or whatever you want to call it and stuff. Um, and they're going to use him and they're going to put him in situations where he's going to take the fall. Uh, Stop the Steel being an excellent example. Um, but, you know, anyway, I, I do think that Nick kind of had, there's a man behind the mask, the way behind the mask. I do think there's a real person there. But I also think that, you know, our ideological differences are, are pretty, pretty great. Okay, let's uh, fast forward here. There we go. Death squads, right wing death squads. 
Didn't she say that? So she was kind of on that version of the alt-right. But I can't imagine her voting for a Democrat. I mean, she's she's a conservative movement monster. Oh, Ann Coulter. She's such Ann a glamorous Coulter. queen. I'm obsessed with her. Yeah, I like Ann Coulter. And a Christian. He has some good books. <laughs> I could never stand conservative. <laughs> it's just such an anti-intellectual movement, and it's just so, like, I don't know. It's, it just doesn't have a vision. Because left... I think by anti-intellectual he means unesthetic, right? Not not aesthetically pleasing. Leftists are reactionary. Cool. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, so, it's, it's, it's about what's cool. Right? It's not so much about what's intellectual, it's about what's cool. Race realist, liberal, like, would that be an accurate assessment of your ideology? What would you call yourself? Well, I mean, I, I, I do, I, I guess you could really call me a race realist. I mean, I think that's a very Do you like Steve Saylor? Published. Yeah, I think Steve Saylor is fun. I've always liked Steve Saylor. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, again, my concerns, like, what I actually care about is just a lot bigger than, than the stuff. Like what? What do you care about? Well, we're, uh, we're moving towards Apolloism. Apolloism? Yes. Like, like paganism. Yes. <laughs> what? What? I'm glad I'm shocking you all. You are? Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, let me Google that real quick. Um, do you want that to be like a, like a dominant religion in the culture and why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hopefully around the world. I, I have a serious question for you, uh, Richard. Um, okay. How shocked were you when Roland Martin informed you that Egypt was in fact in Africa? <laughs> <laughs> um, that was pretty much, I believe I said that Egyptians are white, which makes not the best. <laughs> maybe, maybe although not inaccurate um, entirely, at least for founders. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was maybe the best response in that context of a that kind of hostile interview. But yes, it, I, I do think that there are people out like um, Egypt, like African Egypt, Egyptology is kind of similar to the Kanye stuff about like whatever he believes. I, I don't I don't know exactly what he believes. I think some people like people in, this docu- in that documentary that Kyrie Irving mentioned. I believe they they think the Jews of the Bible were uh, sub-Saharan African. I think Kanye, again, to be, you know, trying to accurately represent what he thinks, I, I think that he believes that Africans were almost like a Kushites or something. They were like a tribe of Israel. But I don't think he is... I, I remember... I don't think he has stable beliefs. He's just saying... Yeah, that's that's fair, but he, he kind of does believe in something, you know? Like, however weird it, it might be, he, he has a belief system. I, and I I remember seeing him shake his head when Lex Friedman said, this reminds me of Black Hebrew right stuff. And he kind of shook his head, so I'll take him at his word. Um, I think he believes that, like, he's the tribe of Kush or something like this.
Um, so, yeah, I, I don't really quite think of it yeah, as not really a way it's just kind of allergic and so conflict. So, it's these conservative like Chad, time. That, you know, he was talking about only we can just trade and live in tiny little statements and be no problems in the world or something like that. I've never heard that. You understand where you're coming from, but I mean, millions of people elements to their coalition, the working class, and the managerial class. Well, they're going to die. But don't you think that just not having a war is letting Ukraine and Russia find out? Is the country club set and the real club? Sounds a little uh, now a wonderful place here at the edge of the world. Yeah, this is a much bigger party of the working class. Okay, and the American government is more of a recognition of the workers' and the it's Chad Factor. Who among us can forget the Chad Factor? It was like three strikes in a G'day mate, 40 here. Let me know if there's too much wind. I'm still at Andrew uh, for Speaking hatefully is a bad thing, Being unnecessarily hateful, saying, you know, all these bad things that happen to Workers, that's bad. Harassing people, you know, going to their workplace, the house of worship, the community, that's a bad thing. These terms have been so grossly inflated to simply cover any type of speech that I don't like. So, on Twitter, effectively, over the past six years or so, harassment simply meant, meant disagreeing with a woman. Disagree with a woman. Puncture her, her logic in any way. You know, you're, you're harassing her. So, uh, Alex Jones was banned from social media. All the social media companies effectively acted in uniform back in 2018. I was ambivalent. Alex Jones has said so many just wrong, harmful things leading to the, to the harassment of. Okay, so I was ambivalent, I'm, I'm almost a free speech absolutist, but uh, I was ambivalent when big tech and actions didn't particularly bother me to understand why people would not want him. On the other hand, I have no problem in saying why conservatives would want Alex Jones on Ben, because Alex Jones is right wing. He does support Republicans in the right wing against the left. So he is, to a degree, a comrade in arms. So he appeals to a more The type of excitement that the 115 IQ person seeks out is very different from the type of excitement that the 95 IQ person seeks out. Alex Jones is on the right, right? So he 
is yeah, from yeah, the baby. You can see is fighting the left. That should I go to the camera Alex Jones. I think he does a tremendous amount of harm. But I have to recognize that he is a fellow fighter on the right, so I understand why conservatives would want to see him unbanned. And Porter says that Donald Trump, first thing you need to do is not unbanned Elon Musk. First thing you need to do is not so much unbanned. Donald Trump, but the first thing you, you need to do is to unban it's easy to understand why conservatives love Alex Jones because he's appealing to a low IQ crowd like Donald Trump. Donald Trump's a troll whisperer. Donald Trump is excellent at speaking to the 95 IQ audience. And uh, so too with Alex Jones. He's speaking to an audience that wants excitement and purpose and meaning in life. They, they want to feel like they're living from the inside and they're getting the real deal. They're finally you know, understanding how the world works around them. And because they only have an IQ of around 95, right there, their intellectual possibilities are quite limited. If they weren't listening to Alex Jones, they would not be reading Shakespeare. Like what Donald Trump engaged in in starting the war, so dial back into the back of the seas. I think that... Um, that is a winner of the world. Who is absolute, absolutely polluting the discourse. Okay, I agree with that. But what do you expect from someone who's speaking to the 90, 90 people going to lawyers? And what I mean by that is that he's, he's not only wrong, obviously, many people are wrong, most academic articles in the sciences are actually kind of wrong, more or less. But he's acting in a kind of bad faith. I think Alex Jones might very well believe what he's saying. I think he does, actually. But it doesn't matter whether or not Alex Jones believes in what he's saying. Sincerity is not a virtue. Right? Sincerity is not something we need more of. Like and because he has this charisma, um, he is able to gain a tremendous following, and he's able to grift off this following and just in it's not his charisma, it's the sense of excitement that he brings. Right? He gives gives you know dumb people a way of understanding the world that is tremendously exciting in an incredible way. So he really has monetized. It's similar to what Richard Spencer has done. He's given deluded people an excited way of understanding the world and it's what Richard Spencer's still doing. Right, with Apolloism. Right? It's a, a romantic, exciting way of understanding the world and feeling like you're living from the inside and this is the, the real deal. Now you're, you're connected to the universe and you're aligned with your true self. Right? It, it's one romantic crusade after another for Richard and one romantic crusade after another for Alex Jones. Just that one person speaking to a a crowd with an average IQ around 115 to 120, and another bloke is speaking to a crowd with an average IQ around 90. Winner about the working class. Delusion. And I do think that that kind of figure is deeply toxic. Uh, um, you have to have some thoughtful deregulation. Yeah, Alex Jones to you know, is toxic. Entrepreneurship, right? he, he's he's to motivated people to do you know, horrible things, such as harass the, the Sandy Hook parents who right. lost their children so in that mass shooting at Sandy Hook. Intelligently done, thoughtfully done. If, if people could appeal look to Alex to the, Jones for more than entertainment value class and, and start you know, taking class. some of his more deluded 
perspective seriously and Sometimes start harassing people on that basis. Yeah, it's just, toxic, uh, but uh, same thing could be said for uh, many of the followers of Richard Spencer and taking many of the things that Richard has said seriously. Uh, so it's not just the uh, message, infrastructure, it's America's how it plays out with a particular audience. So how many hundreds of people's lives have been damaged because of Richard Spencer? How many hundreds of people's lives have been damaged by Alex Jones? Again, the people that both of them have damaged are people who've been seeking, you know, illicit forms of excitement. There really is no value in listening to schizophrenic about tell you about how you know, space aliens are telling her that her, aunt wants to kill her, and it's a really big problem, and that's why... So there's been some reasonably thoughtful stuff on Alex Jones. Richard Spencer was a willing guest on Alex Jones. He was a willing guest on Russia Today. Richard said at the time he went on Alex Jones because he's an American institution. So if you look at Richard Spencer and Alex Jones as entertainment, then they're not going to have a toxic effect on you. Richard Spencer's intellectual entertainment. Uh, Alex Jones is conspiratorial entertainment. If you look to them for more than entertainment, you're going to go wrong. But if you put them in their proper genre of entertainers, provocateurs, shock jocks, put people in their proper genre, they're much less likely to hurt you. That's why she's locked herself in her room for 48 hours. There's really no value in that. And... Okay, the only people who are going to lock themselves in their room for 48 hours after listening to Alex Jones are people who are already mentally ill. You know, I, I don't know. Saying I'm, oh, I'm pro-free speech or something, that's what everyone says. And when everyone says something, that means that it is ultimately a meaningless platitude. There actually is such a thing as bad speech. And there is such a thing that is just so toxic and stupid, but which seems to be able to kind of call upon, you know, base emotions or maybe even incipient schizophrenia among the audience. Okay, and you could say the same thing for much of uh, Richard Spencer's work. You know, when he was going around saying, hail our people, hail freedom, you know, see Kyle, and uh, his followers were greeting him with, with Nazi salutes, all right? This is the same kind of manic, deluded, schizophrenic energy that uh, Alex Jones appeals to. Yes, and I, I think it actually is extremely bad. And at the very least, we should talk about it seriously and not just kind of grandstand about our love for free speech. But anyway, the... What, what? Yeah, I give uh, Richard credit here. This is something that uh, to be spoken about seriously, and uh, much of what Alex Jones puts out is toxic, is bad for people, does lead people in a bad direction. Though the very same thing could be said for much of what Richard Spencer has promoted, his compadres have promoted, right? A lot of lives have been ruined by pushing edgy, dissident, dissident right neo-Nazi material. What motivated me to write this little blog? Let me uh, post it here. How do you post things? My main issue really isn't so much of, you know, is Alex Jones acting in bad faith? Is Alex Jones polluting public square? But why conservatives love Alex Jones? Okay, it's easy for the conservative Alex Jones because he's on their side, right? And they see the left as an enemy. Oh man! Now they Twitter, Twitter. Why are you doing this to me, bro? I'm trying to run quality production here. And Twitter keeps messing with me.
yelling at people. And so, so the excuse, the excuse is made for Alex Jones is basically he knows not what he does. He's just this innocent, goofy, good-natured guy who's worried about losing his country, and he's attacking Democrats. And well, okay, yeah, Rich is right. That's a stupid excuse. He claims that they're literally vampires, but well, you know, we all get it wrong sometimes. But he's kind of he's headed in the right direction, and he kind of again he's innocent in the sense of being naive. He knows not what he's what he's doing. Um, I think on another level, Alex Jones represents a really serious problem with conservatism in the sense that everything is an emergency for them. Look, Alex Jones is just a really dumb, low IQ version of conservatism. I'm sure there are lots of dumb, low IQ versions of, of left-wing thought as well. The election is the most important election of your lifetime. And what it is, it's about saying no to something. They are naysayers. No, what it is is about creating meaning and excitement for people. Uh, particularly people with not terribly many options and without much cognitive capacity. It's about loudly yelling no at some the latest novelty. You know, it's wearing masks or drag queen story hour or CRT or whatever. And they, and, and you know, I also... Yeah, a hero system's a biological necessity. There's some way of attaching yourself to something greater than yourself. Right? Absolute biological necessity. Uh, we all fear being insignificant, and so we're looking to attach ourselves to a cause, to you know, something that transcends us, something that's going to outlive us. We want to attach ourselves to something that goes back in time and will you know, outlive us. And by attaching ourselves to something like that, then we can overcome our own fear of insignificance. It's all of those things. But they, they're, they, they're, these, they're a type of person who's kind of overwhelmed by the world. They're overwhelmed by progressives who are kind of... In- well, what type of people were attracted to Richard Spencer back in the day? Uh, similarly, people who are overwhelmed by the world, uh, looking for meaning and excitement, looking for, for thrills, uh, looking to take on some kind of heroic quest. These are the same people who are interested in Richard Spencer's version of Apolloism. And so they're, they're playing whack-a-mole, or it's just this endless rearguard action that we've got to yell no at something new this time. And when you're in that situation of being overwhelmed, there's there's no time and there's no ability to actually put forth a vision of the world. And as I wrote, in that sense, the conservative intellectual really becomes an oxymoron. You can't think about these things too deeply or too clearly or with too much nuance. Because after all, it's an emergency. Look, a conservative intellectual is not a conservative activist. Activists are not intellectuals, so, which is making genre errors here. People who are intellectuals are not activists. People who are activists are not intellectuals. Activists have rational incentives for enlisting Alex Jones to their cause or finding their common ground with Alex Jones. Conservative intellectuals are not forming common ground with Alex Jones. I don't want to hear about your analysis of the situation. I don't want to hear about your nuance. I don't want to hear about your self-criticism. They're out to get your kids. So they are kind of schizophrenic on some level, and I think that's maybe another reason why Alex Jones appeals to them. No, different parts of the conservative movement are not schizophrenic, they're just different genres, different parts of activists, and not intellectuals. Intellectuals are not activists. Conservative intellectuals are not making common ground with Alex Jones. Ann Coulter is a pundit, she's not an intellectual. Ben Shapiro is a pundit, he's not an intellectual. Uh, but 
write in the initial pages of National Review to uh, stand before history going stop. That might very well be the best maxim of the conservative. That is what he is constantly doing. And Alex Jones is doing that for them. And he's kind of representing their inner kid in the sense that he's not doing it with any pretense of respectability. He's just ripping his shirt off and loudly yelling at people. And so he kind of represents the internet. He is who, you know, Ann Coulter or conservatives would be if they had his energy and charisma and they had abandoned all pretense of respectability. So anyway, uh, there it is. There's my argument. Uh, if you guys want to hop in, you're welcome. We already have one request here. So another reason that many conservatives uh, want to form some common ground with Alex Jones is they want to get on his show. They want to be promoted by his uh, media ecosystem. Uh, Alex Jones has promoted some true things, some good things, some accurate things, some prescient things. You know that uh, Matt Drudge used to link to him a lot back in the day. So Alex Jones hasn't just done bad, hasn't just deteriorated the public discourse, hasn't just been a buffoon or an idiot or encouraged mental illness. He's also done a lot of good things. People are complicated. All right, go for it. Hello, Richard. How are you? Uh, I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm doing well myself. So personally, I, I fully agree with you. I think Alex Jones truly has no, no place anymore in the conservative movement. I, you know, frankly, I, I think there was a case to be made perhaps when he was a younger man and he was doing things like predicting 9-11 and whatnot. Well, you know, maybe... Uh, he's predicting 9-11. There's, there, well, I, I won't say he predicted it. I will say there's a video of him, you know, saying things which eventually came to pass. However, you're yeah, right. See, that's ultimately bullshit because, like, if, if you're one of these guys who endlessly predicts that the stock market's going to crash or yeah, endlessly critique, predicts yeah. that the New York Yankees are going to lose a baseball game, you're going to be right at some point. And you can kind of come back with that and say, well, Alex Jones was right. them or not keep them like the, the Republican Party doesn't have this enormous top-down power right? no one can exile you know, Alex Jones he's his own character he's a self-supporting organization right he's been banned from all the major social media and, and he's still going so it's kind of pointless to talk about the conservative movement or the Republican Party you know exiling Alex Jones they don't have that power Include Ann Coulter. I'd say Nick Fuentes as well. Um, yeah, no, okay. Trump, I, I would say your What? I understand. I understand your argument. And let me respond, and then um, I will move on to. Uh, um, first off, the 
uh, National Front, at least in my estimation, never played upon just outright schizophrenia. So I'm not really making the case of, you know, you're a little rough around the edges. You know, there, there's something almost, you know, fun about Alex Jones when he's just, you know, just kind of talking about wild conspiracy theories of the moon landing. He, he's a little slice of Americana, I guess you could say, um, to be uh, uh, perhaps overly fair. Um, but, you know, the, he does represent still the conservative in-brain. And, you know, I don't... No, he doesn't represent the conservative in-brain. He represents a manifestation of a 90 IQ conservative id brain, right? 120, 130 IQ conservatives are not resonating with Alex Jones. percent of conservatives, particularly those who are motivated to vote, are highly aligned with Alex Jones. And I don't know if conservatives can really go anywhere without that element to it. Uh, okay, so Ian S. Hey, Richard. Thanks for the... Uh, so, honestly, I think uh, whenever I hear you speak, it's like my IQ is increasing on the spot, actually. Um, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I kind of wanted to ask, you know, maybe I'm looking too much into this, but do you think uh, people like Alex Jones, because I largely agree with your analysis, do you think that uh, there's a possibility that they are some sort of controlled opposition? Man, all this talk about controlled opposition just gets boring, right? Alex Jones is so unhinged, right? He'd be the last person who'd be employed as controlled opposition. Certainly that possibility. And, and and also, you know, whatever something, however something began, it doesn't, it can end up someplace else. And so I think you could definitely make the case that Alex Jones, when he began, he was this entertaining, you know, wild Texas radio guy. And the, yeah, there was nothing really suspicious about it. But uh, I guess you kind of would go there at some point. And whenever you have a cash cow, like if Wars became, then I mean, what was revealed is... Um, you know, depositions and trials. I mean, this thing is pumping out hundreds of thousands of dollars a day or something. I mean, it's just incredible. Once you have something that lucrative, then, you know, the rap... Yeah, if you meet 95 IQ, 100 IQ, Americans need for excitement and feeling like they understand what, you know, is really going on or what's really running the world, right? There is an enormous audience for that. There are a lot more people out there with a 95 IQ than with 145 IQ. So he's meeting a need for, for meaning and excitement that used to be met by religion, right? If, if people weren't into Alex Jones, they'd very likely be in some low IQ form of religion, you know, Assembly of God or something like that. Come on, that's a true person that like me. People are going to want to get a uh, piece of that pie. Um, yeah, I mean, I, there's, there's an interesting video of Alex Jones where I think he's talking about David Icke or David Icke. And David Icke is uh, very famous. I think he used to be an athlete, and then he was a sports announcer, like a soccer uh, or football, I guess, over in the UK announcer. Um, and then he just kind of went off the event. And Alex Jones is saying that, um, oh, you know, he, he's a turd in the punch bowl. So basically, you know, we're talking about the New World Order, and then this guy talks about, you know, they're actually shape-shifting lizards, and so you can just immediately dismiss it. He's like, he was basically suggesting that he was a kind of uh, false opposition in that case. Um, I, I, so I think it... And then, you know, obviously that same criticism could be applied to Alex Jones. So I, I think it's possible. I mean, without evidence, I would want to make that suggestion. Um, but I, I think I would, at least the way I would talk about it, is in a, in a slightly different way. It's not so much that you want to demonize or, you know, uh, slander the other side. Like, let's get the most ridiculous person possible so that the other side looks bad and we win. Um, I think that the notion of the Caduceus 
which is something that um, uh, Mark Roman has talked about, I talked about as well. It's, it's not so much about like controlling the other side of this course and making them look like complete ridiculous fools who should just be dismissed out of hand. It's about kind of creating a synthetic opposition. And so, the op- you know, if you're right wing, if you like Alex Jones, you know, that means you, you want to slam. But doesn't everyone create a synthetic opposition? Doesn't everyone you know, use straw men? Isn't that just a, a human lazy way of uh, dealing with your opponents in life? is to you know, describe them in ridiculous, unfair, dishonest terms. And I think that's uh, something that's uh, unique to Alex Jones. ...and talk about the Bible, and you're a libertarian, and you know, all that kind of stuff. That, that's what it means to be right And so I, I think it's that creation of a synthetic opposition. So it's, it, it's like the difference of, you know, are you a capitalist or are you a communist? Are you a Jew? Part of it is that Alex Jones listeners just have a more medieval worldview. Right? They see the devil, they see God, they see the sacred and the profane and the holy and the unholy. They're doing battle all around them. And so it's not just a different belief system, it's a different way of experiencing life, it's a different sense of self. So as opposed to the modern liberal notion of a self that is buffered, strategic, autonomous, basically good, you know, capable of rationality, Right, the, the more medieval notion of self is that the human being you know, is naturally predisposed towards evil, is porous, is, is vulnerable to being negatively affected by evil forces around it. There are sacred spaces and uh, dangerous places. There are holy men and unholy men, and that we're all you know vulnerable to the forces of darkness and evil. Right? Alex Jones you know, embodies this more medieval perspective on life. All conservatives are more medieval than you know, modern liberals. Are you a Christian? All of those binaries, like that's not the whole of the whole story. That's by no means even close to representing the spectrum of opinion. And yet you create these binaries where people are like, oh yeah, I'm on Alex Jones' side. You know, and I think Anthony Fauci is, is trying to kill everyone. And, uh, you know, there's all these kind of lunatic opinions, but also opinions that are just kind of useless and stupid. And it can't really go in some ways he's part of that Caduceum, but I would say the entire American right is part of that kind of Caduceum opposition, um, where it's about synthetically creating the binary, and... Well, it's creating straw men, and it's creating a sense of excitement and meaning, and a sense that you have the, you know, the real stuff. You have, you know, access to what's going on with the inner party, the, the people who really run things. Alright? I, I think it's about that excitement and a delusional sense that you're on the inside and that you understand what's really going on in the world. Bye-bye.